Hi, this is Nan Rissali. You're listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past facing mirror images that were not his own and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. His only guide on this journey is Al, an observer from his own time who appears in the form of a hologram that only Sam can see and hear. And so Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, striving to put right what once went wrong and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 128, Revisiting Kamikaze Kid. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, everyone. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. I'm Allison Pregler. And I'm Matt Dale. And today we're back to the OG, to the oh. classic series. Today we're going to be talking about Season 1, Episode 8, Kamikaze Kid, not Season 1, Episode 8, Fellow Travelers. Wow. Or was that Episode 9? Which With one was Episode 8? Numeracy. It's always fun here. Episode 8 was Stand By Ben. Oh, Stand By Ben. So <laughs> It's weird. <laughs> that we're doing season one episode, uh, similar episode numbers on the same season of two different shows that are the same show. Just Mind call blown. it season six, Ben. Uh, ben? Ben? You're not Ben, you're Chris. <laughs> ben from the Just year 2022? <laughs> you can call me Ben. I know I mean, exactly I'd who like... you are, Ben DeFilippis from the year 2022 or three or whichever it is. <laughs> I'm his less handsome cousin. <laughs> anyway, who could compare uh, to his rock and hot bad though? <laughs> I think that's a Kevin Kniff himself uh, reference, is it not? Yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, um, Kamikaze Kid, back to season one of the classic series. And uh, we are also proud to bring you an encore of our interview with Holly Fields, who mm. also appeared in this episode. God, that interview, I listened to it this afternoon. Albie sounds like a baby. <laughs> and I think we did it. <laughs> I think we did that. It had to be like almost eight years ago now. Oh, it was right when they started. Yeah, yeah. Because the, they were the original podcast. They started doing it in order. And um, yeah, they. I think they did that. that pretty early on. Like maybe after the Claudia Christian interview, she was the first one. Yeah, Claudia was the first one. December 12th, 2013. Oh, oh, 10 years sense. ago. 10 years ago. Well, nine, I guess less, a, a little over nine, we should say. Yeah. I guess it makes sense then that Holly wished everybody a happy new year and a happy holiday at the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> she just seems awesome. Yeah. Yeah. What a sweetie. Yeah. So it's a fun interview and mm. um, they talk about the one thing that you are going to want her to talk about. Oh, yeah. So yeah. you'll hear all about that. <laughs> It's one thing that we're definitely going to talk about, yeah. but let's just get into it, guys. Let's do some, it was, well, before we get into it, can I just say what a pleasure it was to just sit down and watch an episode of Quantum Leap 
it was it was just a joy. It was a delight to go back to the classic series and to sort of get back like connected into why we started this podcast in the first place, because I'm enjoying the new show, but it's such a different experience watching and uh, talking about the new show. This is why I started podcasting. This is why I love to get on mic and talk to you guys because we're talking about Sam and Al and Quantum Leap. I'm so glad that you felt that way, Chris. Um, I, I don't know. I may have mentioned at some point I'm writing a book at the moment. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I've spent the best part of the last year watching and re-watching and analyzing frame by frame the original series. So I am so glad that you managed to get a bit of a, oh, this was nice and relaxing watching the original series. Um, <laughs> no, I felt the same way too. It's just you. You're just getting that burnout, that quantum yeah, right, burnout, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah. It's a little too much. The thing is, yeah, I, I don't have to analyze it frame by frame like you're doing, Matt. And not, you know what? You're you're kind of insane. Let me <laughs> tell you why. Yeah, let me analyze you here for everybody that's listening. Ooh. Not only are you doing uh, the second edition of BTMI, Beyond the Mirror Image, uh, an observer's guide to Quantum Leap, coming soon uh, to all supporters everywhere, and I guess eventually for sale generally. Yes, after, that, that's uh, volume one coming out, and then there's going to be volume, <laughs> volume two. One of three. Who knows if okay. there will be more. Right, so it's the second oh, edition, gonna be three. two volumes. Three, there's going to be three. There's going to be, oh, oh, right, gonna be three, that's, the that's news. Volume two is just there's season one of the new series. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Man, you're going you're gonna to die before you finish these books. <laughs> but not only are you doing that, Matthew, if that wasn't enough, you're also doing your own sort of like super edits of all the episodes, going through, cleaning them up, mm-hmm, HDing mm-hmm. them. I don't know what, what you do over there, but that's more frame by frame by frame by frame stuff. You are just, you're up to your eyeballs in quantum. Yeah. I need all the time. To, I need to be able to watch them in, <laughs> in perfect quality. Um, but look, you know, it's I, I still find it fun watching Quantum Leap. If I didn't find it fun, I wouldn't be able to talk to you guys about it. I just, uh, I still relish that, <laughs> that, that innocence, that naivety that I can hear in your voice of, oh, just sitting back and watching it. I'm, I, I can almost feel it, almost. Well, you know Go what? It, it feels like less pressure watching an episode like this because I've mm. seen the original show so many times like and i'm so familiar with it like i still wrote a lot of notes but i feel like there's there's less pressure for me to um try and be like okay what's the good what's the bad how can i make this work whatever and there are certainly good bad and ugly parts of this episode and and a lot of episodes (laughs) of quantum leap but Mm. i just you know it feels like going back to basics and it is kind of going back to basics because we're still in season one there's things about it that they would change later it's kind of interesting looking at it that way it really reminded me why i love this show like i i love quantum leap i love this episode i I just had a lot of fun re-watching this one Right. So would you consider those your first impressions? Any other elaboration on that? Yeah, I think that's good. All right. How about you, Matt? First impressions from your jaded worldview, from your yeah. jaded pedestal <laughs> up there in quantum leap, uh, like um, academia. What, what, what do you deign to say about this episode? <laughs> <laughs> this is, uh, this is a really, it, it really balances the, the, the fun stuff with the, uh, the heavy stuff, which season one quite often goes one way or the other. And this um this nicely has a bit of both. So I think this is one of the stronger ones of the first season just for that. Mm-hmm. Just for the fact that it, it really leans into both of them in, in different ways. All right. Well, I, I'm going to do you one better. And maybe it's because I'm on sort of a, an original series high at the moment. But I think this may be, maybe a perfect episode of Quantum Leap. I love 
this episode and I hadn't <laughs> seen it in so mm-hmm. long. But it's just so great because like you were saying, Matt, I think it's, it's equal parts drama, but it's also reveling in the premise here. Like you, you can tell they're having fun with all of the stuff that the show can do. And they're bringing it to the forefront here with just a lot of memorable, wonderful scenes. And what I think may be one of my favorite moments, if not my favorite moments in all of Quantum Leap is in this episode. Ooh. So, well, yeah, I think that that this is exactly what Don had in mind when he was creating the show, the fashions, the cars, the music, the nostalgia. Yes. Oh, it's heavy on the yeah. nostalgia on this one, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Nostalgia oh. overload. <laughs> <laughs> the, the nostalgia thing, I, I did some calculations here, because this is, the, this is the, the second time we've gone back to the original series since we started watching the new series, right? And the first one was, was Colour of Truth we did a few weeks back. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was 28 years before... The episode was aired. That's when this is set. And I, I, I've always grown up thinking Kamikaze Kid is a total period piece. Uh, it's it's distant past. I, I don't even understand how anybody who grew up in that time could still relate to it in 1989. And then I realised that 28 years ago was 1995. And like <laughs> Quantum Leap now is quite happily jumping to the mid-90s. And I'm watching it thinking, yeah, I, I, could, I could time travel to the mid-90s and... and totally fit in it's not that 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 was yesterday and um it really really changed my view of what 1961 was in 1989 that this this was not actually that long ago yeah but you know what 1989 you were nine years old yeah yeah exactly it's it's the watching it through the eyes of a a, a, somebody in their early 40s but also with that element of comparing it to okay in my early 40s now looking back at the mid 90s it doesn't seem like that long ago. I get that nostalgia when we do the mid nineties yeah. episodes with with Ben Song. I get that nostalgia, but I also just think it's it's like going to a foreign country, not not like the distant some some weird distant place. It's just like going to France. It's just just round the corner, of the mid nineties, and uh, yeah. Sam Sam didn't go back that far, 1961. Anyway, sorry, I'm not, I'm mean, not sure I where think... that came from. I just, I'm feeling very old today, basically. I feel like the amount of nostalgia that the characters are kind of reveling in in this episode is kind of a holdover of what Donald Belisario kind of thought the show was going to be mm. um, before it kind of evolved into what it was. Because um, there's a lot of like Sam and Al kind of talking about like, ah, the 60s and oh, the 60s, you know, kind of like bringing up like, here's what this was about. You see, like when Sam's walking around in Cam's house, yeah. he's looking at like all of these d- little set pieces that they've put a lot of care mm-hmm. into to say like, this is something authentically from that time. Look at this little waterfall light thing and like, look at all, you know, like it just feels like he's like watching Leave <laughs> it to Beaver when he comes in. They're kind of setting the time. And uh, one of the things that Donald Belisario, when he started the show, he thought that this show was going to appeal to the people that were nostalgic for that time. And Mm -hmm. what ended up happening was it was appealing to a younger audience because they had this theme. All of the themes that they put through this show were relevant for the modern day. So it wasn't just we're nostalgic about the 50s or the 60s. It was like what has changed and what hasn't changed. And so it's kind of interesting. I I get that. It just it really wants me to see Ben Song playing with a Tamagotchi and watching the X Files. 
That's I, w- just- I would love if there was a little more nostalgia or a little more placing it in the time in the, the new show, to be honest, because mm. all of their 90s episodes have felt like they could take place at any time. <laughs> but, Sorry, uh, I, I didn't mean something- to go back to the, the new series. I just, it, it, but it, it, in terms of the nostalgia element, um, it, it gave me a really different perspective this time around. Can, can I maybe make an observation in the sense that I think that, Allison, you were saying that maybe it didn't hit the nostalgia chord with the intended audience, but with an audience that was actually a little bit younger, right? And that probably had to do with the themes that the mm-hmm. series explored that were very relevant. But at the same time, it's kind of why I asked you, um, Matt, about um, the age that you were when you say, Ben, you know, we left back to 1995 or whatever. You were nine years old or, I, or whatever. I, I would have been 15 then. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. But w- what I'm saying is that you lived through that period, and I don't know that you um, have any kind of special. You don't idolize it in any way. It just you lived through it. It was just the world. It was just life. So you don't you don't come at it like I think that anybody watching in '89 who grew up in 1961, '62. That was just the way the world was. Mm. So you're not going to look back and have like this this view of oh, weren't those the days? Or Chris, have I you ever talked to an old person <laughs> who I talks have. about the good old days? Things aren't the way they used to be. People talking about the new show. Everything's woke these days. They don't make shows like they used to, Ooh. like Quantum Leap. Ironically, they say, <laughs> yeah, you know, like there are some people that kind of have these rose-tinted glasses about what they think the past was. Hmm. I, I understand that. And I feel like it might be an age thing completely because I think that you might be more prone to do something like that, say, as you're hitting your late 50s into hmm. your 60s, as opposed to someone who in 1989 is in their 40s watching a show about when they were in their 20s or something like that. Yeah, it, It's not going to be that big of a leap for them and they're not going to have sort of, sort of that nostalgic uh, worldview about it until maybe they get a little bit older and then it becomes, oh, it's the greatest generation and this, that, and the other thing. And it was Camelot and we all lost the, you know, that's, that's, that's when we lost our innocence as a country and blah, 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 horseshit. (laughs) I just think that it wouldn't have been that big of a deal to someone watching in 89 who was say a contemporary of say Matt or you, Allison, someone that's there, you know, your age. As opposed to someone who, you know, might be a lot older, has lost and is living more in the past and memories instead of dealing with, you know, a current day. And that's the exact thing. Yeah, like I, I think maybe part of it too is that uh, I, I think it did appeal to people who might be nostalgic for that time. But this show, a lot of the time, does not present it as the 50s were a great time, the 60s were a great time. They're usually like, That's true. Th- they don't have quite those nostalgia glasses about it. There's certain things they talk about, like uh, malts and burgers and whatever, you know, they have sort of that. They don't talk about all of the bad things, but they say like, you know what, this was a, a repressed time. This was a stupid time. This is when they treated minorities terribly. This is when, the- mm-hmm. so there really isn't that the gr- the good old days part of it, you know, so it, maybe that was part of it, but I, I, I don't think it didn't appeal to older people either. I think it was just a different audience than Donald Belisario initially thought it was going to be. Oh, all right. Well, I mean, and and they really did though lean into the good old days aspect of this one. I, we did have Except for um, Sam. issues. <laughs> yeah, he's like <laughs> early sixties, <60s. laughs> gross. 
<laughs> what do you mean? The, I mean? the nostalgia overload right from the old boy to the downbeat into the wanderer uh, was, I thought, like masterful. And then you get the car hop and the cars <laughs> and the fashions. And it was just like, wow, look at this. Remember this? Wasn't this great? And then Sam comes and shits all over it with his little soliloquy. The, oh, man, the, that was so funny. <laughs> the, he was being a little bitch in this episode. OK, <laughs> he he comes in. He starts complaining about everything he hates about the early 60s. He's like, it's the tail end of this terrible decade the 50s it was stupid and he's like looking at his reflection he's like maybe i'm here to fix this guy's acne <laughs> uh, pizza face Ugh, making fun of this kid and then he's like hey al you want this burger oh sorry forgot you're a hologram uh, like, why are you acting <laughs> such a little bitch here sam <laughs> what had al done to deserve that he was being al- so mean to him <laughs> i know uh, al was just happy on? Yeah, Al wasn't even I, I being a jerk were... at that moment. Sometimes he deserves it, but Al was just—he <laughs> was just hanging around, <laughs> enjoying yeah. the the sixties. <laughs> How dare you be happy? <laughs> so, I don't know. Maybe he maybe he was getting it from Cam. He seems—I don't know. They say in the beginning. I think to explain why he goes to this burger place, like what, how do you get from point A to point B? It's like I don't know. I guess I had an urge for like a malt and a burger, seemingly hinting that maybe cam also had this i don't know maybe maybe cam is a is a, a moody teenager and then sam was also a moody teenager why must he be a teenager in love um, <laughs> surprisingly they didn't have that one in this in this episode i don't think they did anything yeah i, I think this yeah. one also oh, they was did the... they did have teenager in love oh, did they? yes <laughs> yeah well, while yeah, they they're did. um doing the 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 laughing gas slash nitro whichever oh. one it is I thought in the Another wonderful scene. in the background during maybe I'm mixing this up with something else. I feel like this was the first time they used "Oh Boy" the song as well. I think that was in the background. Yeah, that's, the, uh, that's at the, Burgerland. Yeah. Oh, they were playing "Oh Boy." Yeah, the the one by. Uh, no, I thought they were playing "The Wanderer." They yeah. played "The well, Wanderer" that's, that's and then some, they played another. And then they song. go into yeah. "Oh Boy." Oh Boy um, okay. crops up again in Return of the Evil. <laughs> we Leaper. did "Oh Boy." I'm spacing on the artist. That's Buddy uh, Holly. Buddy Holly. Holly. Yes, Buddy Holly, uh, and the Buddy Holly yeah. who was on the show. <laughs> As we recall. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I just love that I can call that up. I didn't have to look it up. Yeah, this buddy hauling the crickets. <laughs> Further cementing the fact that I'm old. Um, it's, it's kind but, of funny they now, have the oh boy in there before. He's saying oh boy, but I don't think the show had really cemented it as that is like the catchphrase yet. Like it was right. getting kind and, of yeah, peppered in right. there. Well, I had mentioned at the end of the last classic episode we did, or it was with the end of the last book show, we knew we were going to this episode. It was the first Oh Boy, like, mm. leap out yeah. tease. But it wasn't the first Oh Boy. He actually says Oh Boy in Genesis. Yes. yes. But this was the first time we had sort of the, the format that we would get to know yeah. as fans that would become the signature of the show, or one of the signatures of the show. Yeah. Nostalgia overload, sure, uh, but they still had the wherewithal to put an issues plot in the middle of all yeah. this stuff. So it was, uh, that's why I say it's, it's sort of like the best of what Quantum Leap could offer because it gives you, hey, wasn't that neat? But it also gives you, hey, maybe we should think about this, you know? And uh, this one was a spotlight on domestic violence. Mm. Right. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I love it when like wife-beating scumbags get theirs in Quantum Leap. That's why <laughs> Raped is like maybe one of my favorite episodes when Sam <laughs> yes. kicks that guy's ass. My favorite part of this episode, next to maybe my my most favorite part in Quantum Leap of all time, is when Sam confronts Bob physically on the lawn. Yes. And he grabs oh, him by yeah. the back of the neck. Sam is like, about ready this. to destroy <laughs> this guy. I love that the, 
the the show goes from like goofy like oh mom i gotta be a teenager now to like i am gonna kick this guy's ass (laughs) don't you fuck with my sister okay (laughs) it was yeah it was great it's it's a great it shows sam's dynamic as a character right because he's like kind of a cornball sometimes in season one but like when it needs to be serious it's serious like you could tell like he's gonna like kill that guy (laughs) And um, yeah, it was a great scene. And it, it just shows you um, how well, I mean, so early in the series anyway, I know that there are a couple of missteps in this episode, but it shows you how early in the series they started to gel on the formula that would make the show such an enduring success because you do go from nostalgia to comedy to goofy to wistful to drama and right back. And it's so seamless. Mm. It's just these series of scenes that have this cumulative whole of like an entire dynamic experience experience rather than plot 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 uh complication plot plot you know it feels rounded you know like it feels like it's not just one tone the entire time yeah and it meanders a little bit you know it's just it's just it's just so good i i don't know yeah i don't want to just start beating that drum this whole time so i mean (laughs) there were some other issues i mean one of the things i think that the show nails aside of course from the domestic violence aspect was sort of the (sighs) the overbearing masculinity of the period. Mm-hmm. And we had a lot of uh, casual casual violence, and you wouldn't really call it violence, but like horsing around with the dead. The running gag in the whole episode, which I thought was kind of dumb, was they keep punching Sam in the arm. Okay. It, and he hates I it. I want to talk about that, actually. Oh, All right. right. Okay. It, it Let's seems, talk about that. It seems weird to have this running gag, <laughs> like a comic relief gag, that Sam is being punched in the arm and it hurts in an episode about domestic violence. Right. It, I, I yeah. tonally, it seems very strange for them to include that to me. Yeah. Um. It, but the yeah. other thing, uh, you know, you talk about overbearing masculinity. I mean, um, this is a theme that ties in with the fathers in this episode, especially that ties into yeah. the domestic violence because it's a cycle. You see that mm. like Cam and Cheryl's dad hits uh, Sam on the arm like he's doing this like play fight, but he's being way too rough about it. And to that, when a kid is encountering that all the time, it becomes normal. It's like, this is what dads do. This is what husbands do. That's what Cheryl learns. That's um, with with Bob's dad. He's drinking all the time. uh, And he's he's um, they don't show him being physically abusive, but he's certainly emotionally abusive. That's something that he learned from him. Uh, it all ties in together. You can tell yeah. uh, Mrs. Bob Sr. Is, is not happy in their relationship. It's not, yeah. a, not a happy marriage. And there's there's a lot that's not said specifically or seen specifically. But yeah, like you say, there's, there's a cycle that we can see is happening. And you can see Cheryl becoming Mrs. Bob years down the line. Yeah. Yeah, she doesn't even have a first name in this. I think her name is just Mrs. Thompson. Mrs. Thompson, right, um, okay. Yeah, I was joking because I couldn't remember. But yes, it is just Mrs. Thompson, isn't it? Yeah. What I liked is that there were these subtle glances between her and um, Mrs. Uh, Wilson, uh, Janie, that, mm-hmm. that was Cam's, Cam's mom. And you just see like sort of this, I don't know, I guess it was long-suffering, but... Just like, this is what we have to put up with, and I'm sorry for you, and you're sorry for me, Yeah, and, you know, I understand, you know? Well, I think what happened to them is what they were planning to happen to Cheryl, because abuse is often not cartoonish, and they're just, like, obviously evil all the time, you know? There's, like, insidious things that happen to try and trap them in this situation. You know, what they're doing with Cheryl, they're like, oh, 
first it's buying a TV and it's like, well, why would she mm. have this TV if she's planning to go to Tonga? And it's like, oh, well, nah. we're going to buy her a house. We're going to surprise her with a house. Oh, uh, well, actually, Bob's taking this job, so we can't go because of the job. And then they're planning on knocking her up and like getting her pregnant. It's like, well, we can't go until the baby's born. You know, you like you, you stretch the goalposts until it, yeah. uh, it becomes not her life anymore and she can't get out of it. And let's let's just pause for a moment on the fact, as you point out, they're planning on knocking her up. Like that's, the, that's him and his dad the... are both planning this. <laughs> oh, it's you know? awful! It's awful, and it's yeah. insidious, and it happens to people. That's yeah, how they get trapped in these situations where they feel like they can't leave. Yeah, and I mean that guy never Bob never intended to join the Peace Corps. Yeah. He never intended no. to do any of that. He was just stringing her along. But yeah, it's so odd to me, and that I guess maybe shows you sort of the the generation divide. I, I have a wife who travels. She does relief work. And I can't imagine like telling her, no, you can't do that. You know, like mm. if, if we if we can put the resources in place and you can do it, then go ahead, do it. And don't ask me to join you. I'm not going to go to Tonga, but I support <laughs> you fully in doing, you know, what, what it is that you want to do. And so it struck me a little bit personally because I, I live with somebody who has that kind of passion to do that and to help people. And I couldn't imagine thwarting that because then she wouldn't be her. And I, I, I'm looking at, at Bob and saying, why do you want to be with this girl if she is this kind of person? Wouldn't you much rather have... Is it just a trophy to you? Like, what? what's the dynamic there that's keeping him wanting to keep her against her will? Uh, wanting to force her into a life that isn't the life that she wants, and but but fooling her into thinking that he's on board with it. Mm. I, 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 is that, I, I'm sure it happened all the time. I just, for me, I can't fathom why anybody would want to be in a relationship like that, where you're actively lying and, and trapping somebody. It's it's despicable and just yeah. Well, I mean, I I think guys like that sometimes they don't see them as a person. They see them as the idea of yes. what they want them to be. You know, yeah. like uh, w- without making this episode too heavy, uh, I was in an abusive relationship uh, when I was younger, and uh, <sighs> there were a lot of things where I would set a boundary, and then it would be like, yes, but. And then what he wants this to be. And sometimes I think about what it would have been if I'd stayed in that relationship. You know, yeah. like I, I didn't want to have kids, but he's just like, you know, I think some the kids is something that it, it, two people like it's the best thing that a relationship that can bring. And if I had stayed with him, he would have made sure that we had kids. And then mm. wh- what do you do then? Like, are you going to leave someone when you have a kid with them? Like, it just feels like mm. it's, it keeps setting like, okay, I, I respect you, but here's what I want to do until it becomes yeah. what they want you to be. And and I, you know, I look back on that and it's like, I don't know what person he saw because we were like two different people, <laughs> you know? Mm. So I don't know. Some oh. of this was a little bit personal in that. Like it mm. was never like physically abusive, but there were a lot of things I recognized in in the mm. patterns there. That's it's just it's it's not all at once. Huh. It just sort of builds up over time. Well, that's that's a you know a good perspective to bring to it because it's manipulation. Yeah, is yeah. what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like um you know uh, getting upset because they don't read your mind or do what you want them mm-hmm. to do or you know it's mm-hmm. it's, ugh, ugh. 
Yucky. Yeah, I used to be that way. <laughs> if we're going to share, earlier in my marriage, I used to be that way. I used to get, I used to get bent out of shape at Laura for not anticipating what I wanted. No bueno. So she would do something completely different. She would do something completely different than I anticipated because, oh, by the way, she's her own person. Mm-hmm. And I would get bent out of shape. Like, why Why would you do that? Or why did you do it that way? Meanwhile, I never communicated to her that I, you know, I anticipate that we're going to do it this way. I just expected her to know what was going on in my head. And I, I had to teach myself to not do that. So it is insidious. And I can be guilty of it uh, as yeah. much as anybody. I'm just glad that I was able to recognize it because I think of like who I could have been and who I could have become. Mm. And then wh- where would we be, you know? Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. We got a little heavy. Huh? <laughs> a little bit heavy. Uh, so, but this yeah. episode, I mean, um, I, you know, it, while we're still on this topic, uh, I do want to talk a little bit about Sam's personal connection to this because uh, mm. he cares about people in general but this one is very personal to him because his sister was in an abusive marriage so he mentions katie he doesn't say her name but we know she's katie because of uh the pilot he mentions her name i believe Mm -hmm. right right and he says that she got married the first time when she was 17 to an abusive drunk and he felt guilty because he should have known he should have helped her you know you always think like oh you're, you're gonna see the signs but you don't always see the signs and uh, it seems like this is something he never told Al either. Like Al seems to to react as if this is new information to him. Hmm. I, yeah, I mean, and the other thing is like, so I'm just trying to also, in retrospect, yeah, he can beat himself up over it. But I'm trying to think, what is the age difference between Sam and Katie? Uh, Matt, do you have an idea? Yeah, what was the difference again? Uh, <sighs> Give me a second. I mean, he was 16 in the leap back. She looked like she was about maybe 12. Well, if she was 17, he would have been off to college at that point. That's because he left at 16, so he would have been gone. So he would have been away anyway. So, I mean, he wasn't even in a position really to be present enough, in my opinion, just in like the chronology of the show and the chronology of Sam Beckett to really beat himself up over it. And I I can understand why he would. And um, even if he doesn't see her that much, he should be able to, you know, pick up on what's going on and help her and how in, especially in hindsight, how didn't I see this? How didn't I notice this? Why didn't I do anything about it? She, but she was born in 57. So So, when he was 13, when he was six years younger than him. No, no, the three years younger. No, wait, uh, 57 versus 53, that's four. Sorry. Yes, yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we know, But math. at that age, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but her leaving at 17, yeah, like you said, he would have been 21 at that point, um, yeah. 22. He probably I, yeah. was away at school. He was probably doing his own thing. Just from personal experience, I have a younger sister that's six years younger than me. Um, when she was 17 years old, I never saw her. I was away at school. I was doing, I was a young man, like doing my own thing in the world. So yeah, would I feel guilty if something like that had happened to her? I'm sure I would. Putting myself in Sam's place, of course, being a big brother and not seeing the signs and not helping someone you love dearly. But at the same time, were you really in a position to help her? I think that was more of a dramatic beat than sort of a realistic beat for um, if you're going to go by the, the, the where the characters would have been at that times in their lives. Yeah. At that time in their lives. In fact, if I could also add, 1974, that's yeah. when Katie married uh, Chuck. 1974 is also when 
their dad passed away. Yeah. And in the draft script, we established that Sam didn't attend the last Thanksgiving before that. So, yeah, Sam's obviously not really around that much when his he- dad dies and therefore when Katie marries Chuck. Yeah, I think it was a it was a weird time for Sam. Yeah. I think he felt like he had let his family down in a lot of ways. Maybe he was out figuring himself out. He was getting all of his degrees and he was pursuing his dreams. But with that comes the price of leaving the small town, this distance between your family. You can't always visit mm. them whenever you want to. And you feel like you miss a lot of things. And uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, is it canon that he missed his father's funeral? I feel like that no. was... Oh, the funeral. Um, possibly. I feel like I got that from somewhere, that he wasn't at his dad's funeral, and I don't think they ever explained why, but that seems like such a tough thing to miss, you know, yeah. <laughs> that you didn't come to that. So I feel like that's also, that's my headcanon about why Sam hates the 70s so much. <laughs> like, he says a few <laughs> times that he just hates the 70s, and I think it's because a lot of bad things just happened in the 70s for him personally, so... Got those memories. It's completely opposite of Al. Uh, We'll learn this later on, but he says the 70s was his favorite time because Vietnam was behind him. He had the space (laughs) space program ahead of him. And, you know, he could just uh, get laid and dance and probably do a lot of drugs and just finally... But he was probably hiding his, his, you know, devastation of losing Beth. Yeah, well, I think like the worst (laughs) and the best times for Al happened in the 70s because he was still in Vietnam through, depending on which uh, lore you go with, which timeline you go with, half of the 70s. Mm -hmm. 75 is when they say in the leap back that he got repatriated. So um, half of it. He is a POW, and then he finds out that he he lost his wife, he was declared dead. All these terrible things happened to him. And I think because of that, he's like, I'm not going to live my life miserable. And he goes out and and just has the best time, or maybe spirals out. Who knows? He was probably doing a lot of drugs, a lot of drinking. Um, And he was just partying it up through half of the 70s. So it's an interesting dichotomy that it was kind of like it was both of those things to him. Yeah. Now, we also saw, I mean, speaking of drinking, we saw that Bob was um, pretty much a chronic drinker in this. Again, yeah. same thing with the dad. And I'm wondering, I mean, was it is it because he was a mean drunk? Like, are they trying to give Bob, Bob a pass because he's got his own demons? I mean, anyway, I... I didn't look at it that way, but I, I guess they're just trying to show you how the cycle of violence gets perpetuated. Yeah, I think and that was it. the things yeah. that can contribute to it. I don't think they they didn't need to bring alcohol into it, but um, I guess it's just trying to round out the character a bit and and give him additional elements. Yeah, yeah I think it's all just part of the the cycle about learning these yeah. things from your parents and continuing them them forward. Yes. Yeah, and at the same time, I mean, I know we, we talk about sort of the casual masculinity and, and sort of the play fighting. I didn't see Mr. Wilson as like a bad dad or a bad guy or any – he wasn't particularly abusive to me. He just seemed like a normal dad. He he was getting too rough. I don't think he was meant to be like completely monstrous, but I think that was just something that was learned. Okay. That's a fair assessment. Like to me, it just seemed normal. And maybe that says something as well. You well, know? the fact like my he dad. Was... By the way, my dad wasn't like that. My dad wasn't like a handsy guy, and yeah, there was no horseplay. You know, yeah. I was a, I was also a giant crybaby, so you looked at me wrong, and I would run away crying. Yeah, I'm, so. I mean, I, I guess there's. Some, I was a big crybaby too. I, I still am, but uh, you know, like I guess there's something to be said about uh, 
generational things what was considered acceptable or not but I'll, I'll tell you what like people and i've met people like this and i've known people like this if you if they get physical even jokingly and you tell them to stop and they keep doing it and they're hurting you that is not someone that you want to be around yeah like that's no, that just sure. makes me deeply uncomfortable and and there's usually some other underlying thing going on there as to why they're doing that because that's not acceptable yeah well, but I don't know. There wasn't a lot with the dad, to be honest. Just that I think that was just another layer to it. Yeah, I think it was just to show you that this has uh, different permutations. Yeah, but maybe that it's 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 part of the culture, right? And, uh, yeah, it, it was just a, a nice another another subtle way to spotlight that. So yeah, which is good because Quantum Leap we know can be very spoon feedy, and hats off to Paul Brown who wrote this episode. Yeah. Uh, a lot of subtext here, a lot of really compelling subtext here on top of the nostalgia, on top of the comedy, on top of everything. Uh, just a masterful piece of writing, in my opinion. Mm. Um, by the way, that wasn't a water lamp, Allison. Those were oil, those lamps. What the, that seems like a fire hazard. <laughs> my aunt had the exact same one in her living room and it would be beads of oil going down these wires and I don't know why you would hang that like over a white couch and a white rug oh, no. in like the fanciest room in the house but anyway yeah. <laughs> there was a lot what of a really ugly browns and yellows and shit it was like oh man that's definitely <laughs> that time <laughs> Yeah, ugly. Even the gangs were quaint back then. The Impalas. I mean, <laughs> this this has a lot of uh, DNA shared with Greece. I think, like they, yeah. they're showing you that. Well, for sure. That idealized sixties. You know, they're racing and for pigs and all that. They're racing. Yes. And did anybody ever walk around with you know T birds on the back of their jacket, or is that just the Broadway? I thing? don't know. I don't know. So. <laughs> they didn't burst into song though, so that was unfortunate. I'd have liked to have seen Jason Priestley re- leading a number. <laughs> Yeah, this was Jason Priestley before 90210, before he hit yeah. it big as a pencil. Yeah. What's this character's name? Pencil. Yes, pencil. <laughs> pencil. And he's, at one point, he's like, I don't think he had the ganachos to show. <laughs> he's having he's a lot so of fun doing this yeah. like little character bit here. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed the guest stars on this one. A lot of recognizable faces. Yeah. Romy Windsor played uh, Cheryl. I've seen her in a ton of things. Uh, she was in Howling 4. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. And uh, Chuck Thompson was Robert Costanzo. Now, Robert Costanzo uh, is a character actor that was in everything in the 80s, yes. in my memory. That and he Bob's even dad? came back in the 90s. Yeah, that was Bob's dad. He's oh. Joey's and he came dad back as well, in the 90s he? To, Yeah, to play Joey's dad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was, there, there's been so many things I've seen him in. He's just like, he's just the dad, right? Every Italian <laughs> dad. Just, every Italian he's dad. A, <laughs> but he's always, but he's always, you know, he always kind of plays like a... <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, he's very sleazy. good at it. <laughs> yeah, he's really good at it. Like, he can do it. Kind of the lovable sleaze ball, you know? It's like, you're sleazy, but you're so charming. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's good at it. If you want that kind of character, he's the oh. one to go to. And how about the casual scene? This is where I found it a little weird, kind of fun, where she confronts, the mom confronts Sam about the Playboy. <laughs> like, <laughs> what is this, mister? Cam! <laughs> It's like it's, uh, we found it, you know, wedged between your mattress and the wall. What? And it's like, you're just going to bring it up in the middle of a kitchen? Okay. In the ha- well, about, no, that I mean, like the implications here. Do, but the, the thing is. My the, mom the, was so much kinder than that. Yeah. I, I just don't get why the backstory of the housekeeper was so 
like scandalized by finding this issue of Playboy that she quit, and then he's like, she's like, if another one quits, then that's curtains for you, or whatever she said to him. You know, it's like what, well, but I mean, like, how many? Is this enough to make a housekeeper quit? They found a Playboy magazine. Well, I don't know, I maybe the housekeeper I... was some kind of fundamentalist Christian. I don't know, um, but Cam can maybe Cam is kind of a, a weirdo. I mean, he's he's just keeping Playboys around his bedroom. He doesn't wear underwear. Apparently, he's always uh, joyriding and stuff. Maybe he's a little bit of a nerdy bad boy. <laughs> it seems like a contradiction there, but they do seem to, you know, say that he's uh, he's into junk food and joyriding. And he certainly gave uh, Cheryl a hard time. But that's sort of what brothers and sisters do, I think. That's true. Yes, yeah, yeah, four four housekeepers uh, or four cleaning ladies over the last year. <laughs> yeah, what four? What How, where are they he's finding a, them? He's got a smut empire, They're, is what he's got. <laughs> okay, so I didn't find that that scene uh, with the mom that random or anything. I thought it was kind of like establishing, especially because this was the first time Sam had leaped into anyone that young. So it's like, well, it, now all of a sudden he's a kid. He's got to be treated like a kid by these parents. I think the most random scene in this episode, you know where I'm going, is in the bathroom. Tweet-a-lead-a-lead. Tweet-a-lead-a-lead. With a Michael Jackson scene. Hello. Why? If, yeah. I have one word next to that. Flop. 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 I mean, this was so, such a random, and now- I, I know that I think I had asked you guys this before, and I just always assumed that the abrupt nature of the introduction of the song was because they had to cut some kind of introductory scene for syndication. No. But no, they just go no. right into like the middle of Rock yeah. and Robin and them doing moves. For, like, <laughs> what? <laughs> it's such a non sequitur. This is definitely like a leftover of it was a requirement for a bit for them to put these kisses with history in there yeah. so they're like how do we do this i don't know i guess he's in a bathroom and michael jackson shows up <laughs> and then they start showing him the moves and then he right. leaves he and michael like, jackson anyway. how to moonwalk and then the, yeah. <laughs> yeah he teaches him how to moonwalk and then an adult close-up of adult feet starts doing the moonwalk yes. <laughs> i love <laughs> when couldn't the kid... Find a kid that could do it <sighs> Man, when the kid comes in, he there's clearly an adult woman dubbing him over, going like, "Mister, who you talking to?" <laughs> I couldn't. It, well, it might not have even been an adult woman. Was that Holly Fields again? It sounded like her to me. Oh, I hope so. You know what? She made a whole career out of doing voice acting and um, like voice replacement for Cameron Diaz yeah, yeah. and Drew Barrymore. Yeah, that's what she does now. She was in like a, like a million productions of Shrek as the princess. Yeah. So she talks about this in the interview with Albie. So that's how I know it. So I, it's entirely possible that they got her to do it because yeah. she has that kind of voice, that malleable kind of voice. Well, I don't know how, how much voice acting she'd done at that point because it was still pretty early in her career, but it's possible they had her there and they're like, well, we have a young woman that could feasibly sound like a little boy. Can you record this ADR real quick while you're recording? Recording your other lines. Hmm. Maybe, maybe. Because it didn't be sound like Deborah Pratt. And I feel like Deborah Pratt is the other one that kind of gets yes. dubbed in when they need a young girl or a young kid, I should say. Yeah, I, I, I hadn't even noticed it. I thought it was just the kid talking to him. Oh, it was definitely not the kid. It was an adult oh, woman going, again. going, Mr. Who are you talking to? <laughs> it was the same actress that played yeah. Tina in The Leap Back. Oh, yeah. Gigi Rice, they brought her in there. Yeah, it was Gigi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how she got the role seen later on. Yeah. <laughs> Can we get back to Sam and Al in this, and especially Al 
There uh, I is know that so that was, much good stuff in this there episode. Seedy, <laughs> seedy season one Al is oh. back in all of his glory. He, all he of his charming glory. He has one scene where he has showed up in the past to watch Cheryl try on lingerie and then leaves. How yeah. old is Cheryl supposed to be? It's not acceptable in any way, but how old is she supposed to be? I I don't know. Uh, I guess we're going to say 17. You dirty old man. She's a teenager. 18. She's 18. She's at least 18 because Cam is 17 and she's he's the younger brother. Right, yeah. So And if she's going to go in the Peace Corps, she's got to be at least 18. You got to be uh, an adult. Poor Cheryl's got enough going on without also that. Yeah, like that. Was, I feel like that was unnecessary, that scene. According to the draft script, that uh, she's 22. Never, okay. sta- never stated on screen, but she's twenty-two. Okay, but that, that makes it less creepy, but not not creepy. <laughs> right, not not creepy, but just the fact that Al is there for no reason. Sam even says, "Why are you here?" No reason. Yeah, just spying on he's girls. Just, I'm just hanging out, watching girls in their underwear, and I think he's probably reminiscing too. I mean, no, maybe he's, he's lo- the proxy he's for the audience. Them try on underwear. Yeah, and then and then he, but he doesn't. When that's over, he doesn't go back into the imaging chamber. He just walks <laughs> he through just the walks wall of the, the house. Door. What are you doing, Al? <laughs> what are you doing? He's just he's just walking around, reliving the sixties. That's what he's doing. Uh, you know, that's, that's the way he, I looked at in it. The sixties, he used to spy on women. That's yeah, <laughs> you know. Okay, so in that scene, he's wearing probably the ugliest outfit he's ever worn. Just this big gray outfit. No, thank you. But earlier in outfit. this episode. I thought it was boring, but <laughs> earlier in this episode, he was wearing the definitive Al outfit. This is the outfit everyone remembers Al wearing. Yeah. When they're at the uh, the burger place, Al is wearing yeah. a silver jacket, tan yes. dress pants, monochrome red shirt with matching sunglasses, mm-hmm. and newspaper print suspenders. <laughs> this is a look. This is the quintessential. Yeah. He never wore those sunglasses again. Like the entire sunglasses are are red. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I feel like this is, again is sort of like the, the epitome of the mandate that Belisario set forward, especially for the Al character, make him as jarring and as anachronistic as you possibly can. Okay, yeah. well then let's well we'll we'll dress him like a baked potato then. <laughs> and a, a, a he, he never hot looks potato. more futuristic than he did there. No, you never, never mistake him for someone in the sixties. But did you guys notice that once uh Sam is stripped? He's not just pants. He's stripped and tossed into a dumpster. Yeah, because he's not wearing any underwear. He's not wearing any drawers, right? (laughs) Do you see when he's getting dressed in the dumpster, they just linger on Al's face watching (laughs) Sam in a dumpster getting... He doesn't turn away. He doesn't talk. He just stares. Now that's creepy. Al's not fussy. (laughs) Any nakedness. Here's the thing about this episode. Sam and Al were in love. They were absolutely in love in this episode, okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sam straight up says, Al, I love you in this episode. And then they end it with them singing a romantic duet to each other. Can I tell you? Now, I had mentioned it at the top of the show. That is maybe my favorite scene in all of Quantum. Mm. I love that scene. When the Everly brothers come in. I love and it. And they're just singing to each other yeah, and then they yeah. laugh and, hey, Hall- Allie boy, how you doing, Sam? That is quintessential. That is the epitome of those characters. And from yeah. that scene, a million slash fix were born. I love it, that scene it was so, so much. 
it, it's because they they play off of each other so well. It's played so sincere that they just decide to sing this duet together. But even yeah. like before, when Al shows up and Sam sees him, he is so happy to see him. He's yes. just like, Al. And then like Al calls him Sammy boy. And he's like, Allie boy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's just it's it. great. And the chemistry, the, the chemistry that those two share is undeniable. And I, I feel like, you know, we got to see a bit of it in uh, the Ms. Melanie episode. But here, they genuinely seem like lifelong pals. Yeah. Like, there's no one they would rather hang with yeah. than each other, you know? And uh, it's such it's such a great scene. I love that scene so much. And especially, I love that song, too, the Let It Be Me. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Everly Brothers, you can't go wrong with that. And... And I've mentioned this in earlier shows as part of a segment that I used to do called Quantum Leap Radio Settings. This, <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a this radio. This was the episode. Yeah, there's a Philco on the shoeshine stand that they have a close-up in when they play that Everly Brothers song. It's supposedly coming out of that radio. And then they dolly back, and then Sam and Al start singing. But I saw that, and I was like, oh, my God, I wonder if that's what kind of radio is that? Oh, is that the right year? Is, was that made in 61? And that's this is the episode that started it all. I, I saw that Philco. And then I just started looking for radios in the show altogether and doing my radio sightings. So oh, that's man. another uh, reason I love this. Episode. An origin story. I love it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if if you don't like that scene between Sam and Al, uh, then there is no liking Quantum Leap for you at all. Because, <laughs> yeah. And that's why I say it. Like, it's, it's sort of a, a perfect episode in so many ways. Um, but we do have um, a very problematic <laughs> part of the episode. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, slightly. Uh, um, that kiss. Okay, uh, so was, so refresh uh, me. Uh, I, it's been a while since I listened to the Holly Fields interview. Uh, yeah. People listening to this will be hearing it shortly. Did she say she had fibbed about her age a little bit, or am I making this up? In the interview, she says that she was 13 and that Scott was 35. Right. And she said it was her first kiss. And she she goes on at length about it. One thing I I, I want to uh, you know commend Albie for is he just he just took it head on, and that's like the first thing they talk about. Uh, and you know, ten mm. years later, the the scene is more problematic than than it ever was. Uh, but the way she describes it, it it was nothing but a positive experience for her. Yeah, sure. So I don't I, think anyone yeah. was thinking of it as, as being something creepy. I think it's just something you think about later. And it's like, I don't think it's acceptable to have a 35-year-old actor having a romantic kiss with a 13-year-old. No. But I, I don't think anyone was thinking about it back then, about what that was. And well, I, I, her character was supposed to be older, too. So I don't know. I mean, did they know she was 13? They must have regardless. done. Her mom was there. and Yeah, her mom was. She said her mom was behind a tree uh, taking pictures. Oh, and, OK. You know, yeah. Her mom was on set. <laughs> okay. Her mom was on okay. set. So, yeah, you'll hear about that in the interview. I don't want to spoil the interview too much. But I mean, it seemed like everybody was cognizant of everything that was going on at all times. And she had nothing but like great things to say. Yeah. And I don't think like anything, you know, untoward was going on. I think they were all being very respectful. It's just something you look back on. It's like, I don't think they would ever do that today. Hmm. Yeah. And I'm trying to rack my brains, trying to figure out why they needed to do it. Because Cheryl's leap was done. Like the mission was accomplished. Cheryl was out of the abusive relationship. She was heading off to Tonga or wherever. And, you know, her life was ahead of her. Her career was ahead of her. Her new husband was ahead of her. Why haven't I leaved? Oh, you have to go kiss that girl. Why? Cam can go kiss that girl. Why does Scott have to do it? Why does Sam have to do it? And it struck me that because the nostalgia in this episode, I feel like 
the thrust of this episode was it was written to tap specifically into a, a, a mid to late 20th century white male nostalgia. And I mean, the 60s being, quote, that, that time of innocence, every song was about being a teenager in love. She was only <laughs> 16. Yeah. Um, so of course they're going to have to do to, to make the trifecta. We, we had the cars, we had the clothes, we had the music. Now let's do the first kiss. Yeah. And it is undoubtedly seen as sort of an innocent throwback to a more innocent time. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm watching a 35-year-old man kiss a 13-year-old girl. Yeah. yeah, they're trying to, you know, be like, well, in order to leap, he's got to give this young girl her first kiss, like a very innocent kind of thing. But you don't, obviously to her, she's kissing a, a teenager, but you, we know that Sam as a character is, it, he's older than 35, actually. Like Sam, if you go with the timeline, but uh, it's just, it's just something that's not that innocent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I guess that goes into a lot of things in Quantum Leap where it's like if you go with the context in the show about who Sam really is versus who the people he's kissing or being intimate with think that they're being intimate with, uh, there are some problems. And uh, yeah, I I think there were, especially in the early seasons, a lot of this kind of stuff where they were like, I don't know, let's kind of end it on something kind of cutesy or something like that. Like, let's have him, (laughs) uh, you know, fix it or have him uh, pull something in a bingo game and then say the the winning number on there or, you know, like... uh, I think there was a script for a season two episode, uh, Animal Frat, where it originally ended with he had to get that guy laid, like one of the guys get, get oh. have him get laid and lose his virginity in order to leap. And it's like, why the, Why would you think that's acceptable? I don't know, because they thought it was funny, I guess. Yeah, it was a different time. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it's, but it's, it's, um, you know what, in the context of the episode, it still works. I might get some hate mail for that. And I think that if they're going to do it, I think Scott played it perfectly because he was so hesitant and he was just trying to be as innocent as possible. Yeah. And then as as he leaps, she becomes more of the aggressor. Thank God he got out at that point, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> because she starts to get she starts to get real into it. But, Didn't uh, um, Paul Brown, he also wrote Runaway and they had kind of similar themes with this like young girl hitting on Sam constantly. <laughs> I'm trying to remember Runaway. That I believe was, us. Uh, I, I believe we talked about it. In yes, there. that yeah. was our first. Yeah. That was our first episode. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, yeah, because in the and script, was, like she was described yeah. as this like Lolita type character. So this yes. was apparently <laughs> a running thing that, <laughs> that Paul Brown a running wanted thing to put for Paul. in there. <laughs> but I, huh. again, I don't think he was thinking of it as as anything bad. I think he was just like, "This is funny to have Sam in this situation." Mm. Hmm. All right. Yeah. And I think, yeah, they, they played a lot of that for gags. I mean, there was a lot of sexist gag humor. If it wasn't, I guess, Paul, then Tommy was writing, you know, like prostitutes and um, weird sex jokes. So they, they had, it was a go-to for the series. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so this is not any anything. Does this establish that dynamic for the show? I guess maybe this is the first time we've seen. Well, I mean, they the had lots of about- sex jokes. It's just the, I guess, the the dynamic between Sam and a and a much younger character, I guess. But that, it, it was just a couple times. It's not like a huge running thing. <laughs> All right. Well, we did get some uh, some some history on Al here. He's got Russian blood on his mother's side. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. Thinking Uncle Steve. Yeah. Who would, uh, who would later become very, very important to mm-hmm. the series. Right. Uh, they don't talk about Al's Russian side very much. Maybe it was a side he just wasn't that connected with because... You know, he didn't know his mom that long. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe, you know, his dad, yeah, maybe where they hung up. Well, 
I just personal experience. I'm half, I'm only half Italian, but I identify mainly as Italian, even though I have tons of Irish and, you know, German cousins, but mm. I feel like I'm Italian because I grew up mainly around my dad's family. Mm-hmm. So it could be just something as simple as that. Yeah. But, uh, I do like the fact that they kept the continuity with this in the sense that they, they bring it up here in like episode eight and then it comes so heavily into play in the series finale. Uh, was that a happy accident? Uh, do you think that they, at that point, they they said, oh, well, we can play on this part of Al's heritage? Or was it just something that happened to align? Because I know they weren't crazy about keeping the continuity with the show. And I know that sometimes, you know, call Trudy Loretta in some scenes and they had to dub <laughs> over it. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, you know. Maybe someone just remembered that. I'm kind of curious how Al knew about that uncle. Like, maybe he met him before his mom left. I don't know. But he died in 33. 33. <laughs> right? So how well, he would have died been before Al was even born. But, I mean, we don't know if that's really his uncle, though, because that's just a weird... Mirror image is just a weird thing. Yeah. I, I never assumed that Uncle Stopper died in 33. Okay, so you think it's just a coincidence. Yeah. That the name. Yeah. So it's like Ziggy and Gushy and... Well, ev- everyone in that episode was not really the people they seemed to be. So. Exactly. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. All right. I, yeah. I'll buy so that. So just I'll the same as Tonchi and Pete looking like uh, the Lamatas. That doesn't doesn't mean anything beyond whatever it means. Here's the thing about Al that they did seem to drop. It seemed like a, a thing earlier in the show, and then it, it didn't come up so much later. But Al seems to be a car guy. Yeah, and Sam certainly knows his way around an engine, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I was kind of like, at first I was like, I don't know, like Sam also knows cars, but it's like, I guess like uh, he just seems to kind of learn and know everything. So maybe he's just like, as a thing that's, how does how do you put this together and take it apart? Maybe he learned a little bit about cars. And only to a point, because like during the, the Nitro scene where he says to Jill like, uh, oh yeah, yeah, I don't remember how to, can you, can, uh, yeah, you remember how to do that? Just just testing yeah, yeah, you, yeah. sort of thing, yeah. Yeah. I took that as him being Swiss cheese, though. I think that if he had been mm, himself, maybe, he would have been maybe. able to do it. Yeah, he, My well, he remembered for this. more about cars than I know uh, with a non-Swiss yeah. cheese brain. True. So I, I think he probably <laughs> learned the functionality of cars, how to fix them and whatever he needed to do, because he's he's very good at learning how things work. But he's not really like a car guy in that, like, you know, he says to Al, like, oh, you let a car like that rule your life. Like, he's not really into, like, cars in the way that Al's into cars. Hmm. No, but I mean, knowing how an engine works is different than being into cars. And my headcanon here is he grew up on a working farm. I'm sure the tractor broke down every once in a while and they had to fix it. You know, so he probably had to learn how to fix the tractor or fix whatever machinery was around the farm occasionally. Yeah. So it would just Hmm. naturally translate into that's why he could diagnose it just by hearing it. Like I knew the camshaft was off. I just didn't know what the camshaft was or how to fix it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I like yeah, that. That's, that, uh, that all connects together. Well, there we but go. it did seem like, maybe I'm just thinking of the, the, the scene in Right Hand of God when uh, Al is talking about the, the neighbor with the car, but I swear there were other things where Al mentions a car. But maybe it's just this episode. I don't know. Maybe it's just a car guy for this episode. Well, but then we have, you know, getting back to the revival series, season six. Mm-hmm. Um, when we first see Beth, she's working on Al's car in the driveway. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking I mean, about it, yeah. that. Yeah. 
So Al obviously did have some kind of affinity for cars in universe. Uh, so that's canon now. Yeah. I mean, in the uh, pilot, we saw he had that sweet yeah. car. You know, he seems to, was it a Ferrari or something? It's some fancy pants yeah. car. Yeah. yeah so I feel like it was exper- like, didn't he say it was an experimental model yeah. or something like that? Yeah. Right. It's some sort of Ferrari Starbright <laughs> project <Knight> <laughs> fusion <laughs> Knight Rider. I never He's driving around like kit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Car Guy Al uh, didn't get mentioned that much, but was kind of prominent through this episode. Yeah, and I think it all fits in with sort of the nostalgia around, you know, girls and cars and racing and and all of that. So, I mean, muscle cars are, you know, still loom large as part of masculine culture. So it's it just it fits right in with some of the over overall themes of the episode, I think, in a good way, in an interesting way. I'm sorry. You know, we we don't get to see it a lot, but I'm glad that they were able to carry that part of his personality over into the new series, give them mm. some more connective tissue in retrospect. I had not remembered any of this stuff until we watched this episode, but it makes that scene with Beth a little bit more poignant for me now when she's talking to magic and working on the car. Yeah. Well, also um, the yeah. fact that she. She, when we first met Beth, her car was broken down and she couldn't fix it. And uh, Al apparently taught her how to fix a car because she was fixing it up. So kind of nice. Oh, it all ties together so nicely. All right. Enough about this car crap. What, what's the lawyer joke? <laughs> all I get was the punchline. Who knows the lawyer joke? I don't know it. Can I, someone tell me what, what the setup is? <laughs> I don't know. I, I'll say it, but we, we, we may want to remove it. I don't know. And to be fair, I only found out because... Uh, I I had to Google it because I just I had to know. Um, <laughs> the, there's there's several variations of it, but it it all involves um, a, a sweet young innocent girl asking a doctor, "Can you get pregnant from having anal sex?" Oh, and that's it. That's it. Well, how does that? So how does the lawyer punchline come in? Well, because lawyers think- are terrible people. That's and they get born from right. What? But that's Women not being anything. impregnated up the butt. Are they trying to say like <laughs> lawyers are anal? Is that maybe the tie in there? No, I don't think they're, it's saying, they're saying lawyers are shitty. There's, yeah. yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So they're shitty really people. It's not really much so. of a joke. I'd be reacting it's... like the moms in that scene. Like, yeah. Oh. Yeah. I, I'm <laughs> reacting like the moms now. But just think about like how like so we have subtext about uh, nudie magazines, no underwear, masturbation. Anal sex. Yeah. This is a filthy freaking episode of Quantum <laughs> Leaps. Potential slash fiction, underage kissing. Holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> this this episode goes everywhere. <laughs> and yet, there's still a scene uh, where Al calls the dad a dirty crumb. <laughs> the language. <laughs> that dirty crumb. <laughs> Ooh, I'm scandalized. <laughs> Okay, uh, more car stuff. Uh, I did like Sam and Jill talking about blowing up while they're high on nitrous oxide. <laughs> that was a wonderful scene. Just the laughter. It just seems so genuine. Yeah. And it's its another reason why I love this episode, because it's not afraid to sort of linger and meander yeah. and just have like mm-hmm. these these wonderful like human moments which is something that we are still sorely lacking from the revival series. That's why I felt like so pumped to be seeing this type of quantum leap again. Scenes like that scene, that scene with Jill, that scene with Al just being there for no freaking reason, just wandering around, you know, you don't get that anymore. I mean, I feel like by giving us these scenes that I guess aren't functionally part of the plot, just like, you know, they're little bits of character. 
You have like little moments yeah. with them. Yeah. You care more about what's going to happen to them because you've had the- this time with them. Like they have the scene where Sam is talking to Cheryl while she's like painting her nails, talking about just little brother and sister moments. And this leads into stuff where he's asking about Bob and trying to say, you know, like, hey, maybe he's not really the right guy for you. But you get to know who Cheryl is. You get to know who Cam is. You get to know like their dynamic there. And uh, yeah. and you feel all the more bad for her that she's in this terrible situation. And it helps you understand a little bit more how she reacts, why she wouldn't believe him, why she wants to defend Bob, why she wants to to make this work. The thing is there, you're getting, like you said, the character and it makes them more rounded and believable. And yeah. I feel like that's a style of writing that has been lost. Um it's, we always go back to Star Trek on the show, but um, and that you can blame it on time. You can blame it on whatever you want. Oh, it's shorter. They had 47 minutes. We have 43 minutes. I mean, you can still work character beats into overall plot stuff. I was watching an episode of DS9, and it was just Kira and Odo talking in Odo's quarters. And um, I guess he had just become, uh, you know, uh, a changeling again. And they were just talking about, are you going to sleep in a bed anymore? Are you going to be in your bucket? And it was just like, just pure character work for mm-hmm. the sake of 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 building their relationship and just having more interesting, you know, stuff for the viewers to chew on. Then I'd think of like Discovery where it's just like hysterics all the time and, and yeah. plot and pacing and that's all you get. And it's just like there's no reason why you can't do wonderful character stuff like you see in this episode in a current TV environment. It's almost like they forgot how to do it. It's like they were trained completely differently on what makes writing, what makes a TV episode. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, don't know. I, I mean, episodes, like stories are more than the plot. They're, they're more than like, how do we get from point A to point B? Like, you got to care about the people in there. And I do feel like uh, a lot of these scenes, a lot of these moments that we liked uh, in this episode, they did still function in a way to move the plot forward. It wasn't like yes. they just stopped in the middle of the episode to tell you what this is all about. At no point do they say what's going on with these dads is because it's the cycle of abuse and because of this. They don't tell you that you're just informed of it because you're watching it and you're like, I see what they're doing here. Mm-hmm. When you have like Sam talking to Cheryl, you know, part of that, he's thinking about Katie, he's thinking about his own relationship, but they're not just stopping to to say that. Like, it's just, it's part of it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. No, no, that's true. It's, it, it's, it's always, it always comes down to show, don't tell. Yeah. So exactly. you're seeing it instead of being told it, you know? And I feel like that's, that's been lost because they just feel like they have to spoon feed plot at every turn. And, uh, you know, Quantum Leap, uh, the, the classic series does become a little bit more like that as time goes on. Trust me, because having edited together the mashups of the later episodes is much easier because you do always have a certain point in the show where there's an exposition dump and then a certain complication <laughs> yeah. that leads into an act break. Absolutely. This is very, it's very difficult to do that with these early episodes because they are not structured like that at all. And you sort of have to fish for, okay, what's important to the plot and how do I get across the thrust of this episode? episode mm. it's it's much harder to figure out what to leave out and how to incorporate what you need to incorporate without going overboard and but but that's but that's actually a very good thing because it's just so organic everything that you see is just so organic yeah i was just thinking uh while i was watching this actually about how they handled this episode versus how they handle in the new show the um the observer and uh leaper dynamics so when Al shows up, 
he tells him about what's going on with Cheryl and they kind of have an idea what the mission's going to be. But they spend a lot of this episode like either just being in the environment or trying to figure out how to navigate to whatever they need to stop. It's it's a lot of what they're doing in the new series is an event. You know, like he has to stop an event. So he's very much like, I I need to stop this one particular thing and not like, okay, well, how do we get Cheryl out of this particular situation? There's no one moment to stop it. It's just like, well, how do we direct her in a different, a different path in life? Mm-hmm. And they have the scene uh, with the nitrous oxide uh, where Al is instructing Sam how to use it in the car. So you have like Al using his uh, his expertise to tell Sam how to do something he may not know, know how to do exactly. But a lot of what they do in the new show is very handholdy. Every scene, Addison's got to be like, Ben, do this, Ben, do that, Ben, do this. And it's just, it feels very instructional. Um, and yeah. I would like it maybe to feel more organic and less like, functional like how do we get from from this point to the next point but how do we live in this moment and then and then try to solve whatever problem is is put forth yeah yeah and um i wish that uh we could get more stuff like you have with sam his voiceover about the camshaft right that gives us a little bit more about sam we'd never get anything like that from ben ben is always you know reacting or lacking a reaction to everything that's going on around him but we i still feel like we barely know him as a character except for maybe the backstory with his mom and the couple of things that they said about how he's the glue that holds that project together, his his strength is bringing people together. I think that they gave us a little bit of that in the Paging Doctor song, and maybe they're headed more in that direction. But man, they would do well to just look at some of this early stuff from season one of the classic series. And this is how you build character. And this is how you get to know somebody. And you know, yeah. it was just errant at the time, but... Just again, since we have the entire series to look at, you just see how comprehensive it feels at the end of at the end of the day. Like we know so much about Sam in such a little time, as opposed to what we know about Ben in the same amount of episodes. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, I want to go over the last bits of what I have in my notes. I did want to say I loved Sam's slide over the hood of the car before he decks Bob in the face. Yeah. He puts that in the, in the intro. They're like, that's awesome. Yeah. That's an opening theme moment. <laughs> Very right Starsky there. and Hutch. Right? We're, we're like... <laughs> We love all the character moments and the the themes and all that. And the, yeah, but what about when Sam slid over a hood and decked that guy in the face? Oh hell yeah! <laughs> and don't they do like they do like three jump cuts for that? Like he slides and then he punches and then he's standing over him like in the intro. I feel like they they, they ha- linger maybe on the that. intro is when he's ducking the car, hitting the pillar. There's like a stunt guy jumping out of the way really quick. That might yeah. be no. That was I Scott. For- that was all Scott. <laughs> no, no, okay. There's the the dodging of the car hitting the wall, which I think is a stunt. Is Diamond Farnsworth? Yeah, that's And Farnsworth, then there's yeah. the um, d- diving over the hood, which is definitely Scott Bakula. I think that's what they yeah. used in the intro is the hood dive. Yeah, they did. Right. Yeah, right. I think they used both. To be they used both. Yeah. Oh, they used both. Yeah. Well, Sam, there you go. Yeah. Matt has meticulously rebuilt all of these. So Matt, you tell us exactly what scenes they use and which one is in the intro that's not in the actual episode because I know there's got to be one of them. <laughs> Uh, right, no, sometimes I, they use alternate takes. They they do, but not for that. No, I'm I'm sure oh, those okay. are both. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean you, you're right. There's there's plenty of times when that happens, but no, those are directly from Kamikaze Kid. Yeah, and and that goes back to you know it's sort of the culmination of that 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 plot thread where Sam confronts him physically and grabs him mm. by the back of the neck, and he's just finishing the job there, and there's just such a yes, you know, it's like this <laughs> moment. 
<laughs> the scene uh, at the rehearsal dinner. We learn that Al likes food fights, which is just delightful. <laughs> <laughs> and then we see Sam. Of course he does. <laughs> he loves food fights. He's just like, food fights, food fights. Oh, I love this. Oh, well, not all the time, I guess. <laughs> Sam's mad at him. <laughs> And um, yeah, Sam's sitting at the children's table. Hilarious. Uh, Michael Belisario is also there. One of his uh, handful yes. of appearances. This is his first appearance. Yes. There you go. They, and, and announcing the screen debut of Michael Belisario. <laughs> As little boy. <laughs> that was pretty good. Um, that rehearsal, the, the, the building they use for the rehearsal dinner is pretty recognizable too. I remember it from Miss Deep South because there's mm-hmm. this uh, distinctive horses on the wall like a chariots oh. and horses oh, yeah. there must have been other episodes they used them in do you remember matt uh i just know those two but yeah like you say once once you've seen it you can't unsee it yeah it's it's pretty distinctive all right yeah that's all my notes and good notes they were allison thank you for bringing up uh that scene of him sliding over the hood and especially the laughing gas scene that was one of my favorite scenes when they're just laughing in the back of the car together another genuine character beat that i adored Let's get some final thoughts. Uh, Allison Pregler, final thoughts about Kamikaze Kid. Uh, for an, an issues episode, uh, it really doesn't feel that heavy. This is a fun episode. Like, I think there's a lot of great moments in it that just bring a smile to my face. And uh, yeah, I was really glad to rewatch it. How about you, Matt? Yeah, couldn't put it better myself. Um, if anything, talking to you guys about it and especially... Chris, hearing your love for it uh, has has raised my appreciation of it. I might actually watch it properly for fun sometime soon. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I hope you would. But uh, yeah, and uh, I'm going to reiterate everything that I said up at the top. I think this may be a near perfect episode of Quantum Leap. I think it was the epitome of everything Don Belisario wanted the show to be. And um, I just genuinely enjoyed it from start to finish. I'm so glad that we're doing this season one rewatch and that I'm finding so much to love instead of so much to be cringy about because that's often what happens in a season one but no it was right there right there at the beginning of the show and the chemistry between sam and al and scott and dean in this episode is just it's bar none it's unparalleled so wonderful wonderful episode of quantum leap and with that being said i think our discussion of kamikaze kid is in the books but uh settle down you jds because after the break we will be back with our interview with holly fields The QLP is brought to you by listeners like you. Please go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast and give as much as you can. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be a contributor to the quantum leap podcast. It goes to covering our server cost and helps keep the podcast going. Thank you. I'm Christopher DeFilippis, and it's time for the quantum leap radio sightings, where I tell you about all the vintage radios that appear in quantum leap. And we've arrived at Season 1, Episode 7, Kamikaze Kid. I bless the day I found you. And this episode, coupled with this Everly Brothers tune, is the entire reason the Quantum Leap radio sightings exist. But more on that in a minute. Kamikaze Kid continues the first season tradition of Radio Mania, featuring three radios, two of which appear in Cheryl's bedroom in the same scene. The first is a 1956 Packard Bell 5R1, sitting on Cheryl's dresser. This is the second time we've seen this model radio on the show, 
but not this set. The first was in How the Test Was Won, where I remarked on the radio's unique deco dial, which makes it look like an old-time elevator floor indicator. The 5R1 seen in Tess is brown and gold. The one we glimpsed in Kamikaze Kid is white and gold. Now, the 5R1 was a popular kit radio that people could build at home, and it came in tons of colors. And since it came out in 1956, it's just fine being on Charles Dresser during Sam's Leap Date of 1961. The second radio in Cheryl's room is parked on her nightstand, and for the life of me, I can't figure out what kind it is. What I can tell you is that it's red, and that it's a portable model with a carrying strap. It looks about right for the late 50s, so I'm going to say no anachronism. Now, the third and final radio in Kamikaze Kid, that's the one that started it all. I was sitting in my office with this episode on in the background, and I looked up when I heard the Everly Brothers singing Let It Be Me. It's one of my favorite songs. And what I saw was a nice close-up of a Philco radio, sitting under a shoeshine chair. As the shot pulled back to reveal Sam and Al, I could only focus on the radio. What model? What year? Did it belong in 1961? Thus, the insanity began, and I've been spotting radios on Quantum Leap ever since. And I'm happy to report that the Philco is not anachronistic. It's a 1952 model 52547 clock radio. It's a beautiful two-tone set with a cream cabinet and a red front. The dial is on the left, sitting flat on top of the radio, and you spin it with your thumb. And it sits right above the gold-trimmed clock, which has a turquoise face. The speaker grill is on the right, and it consists of 35 large holes, and yes, I counted, and they're also flanked in gold trim. It's such an interesting-looking radio that I'm not surprised the director started the scene with a close-up, and I am so glad he did. You might also be interested to know that it was about 10.15 a.m. when Cheryl left for the Peace Corps and Sam kissed Jill. Without your sweet love, what would life be? Until next time, radio fans, this is your Quantum Leap radio guru, tuning out. So, um, how many times have you guys raced for pinks? <laughs> so many it's, times. It's all I ever so... do. In the mom mobile. I have spent so much money on cars uh, just because I keep losing them. How many people these days know what racing for pinks even means? Like what that phrase would even mean? I gotta be honest with you. I mean, hey, everyone, we're back. Uh, but I only know it from watching Happy Days like yeah. in the 70s. Did they so do at least I had some like, kind of racing for pinks. It's just that kind of like that that terminology. It's just like it's just shorthand slang for 60s. Yes. You know, I mean, did they say they were going to race for pinks in Greece, too? Was Probably. Greece 60s or 50s? I always think of it as a 50s thing, but. But it no, feels I think like it, something where there would have been pinks and racing right. and stuff. I don't know. Yeah, but it's still, yeah, it's, it's sort of sort of that DNA. Uh, you know what I saw on Paramount Plus? They're doing a show called The Rise of the Pink Ladies. So you got your pinks, you got your pink ladies, you got your T-Birds, you got the Impalas, who had these neat uh, gray jackets in this episode. Yeah, the little uh, cardigans. Hey, you know, everything was cool in the 60s. And (laughs) uh, I love the fact that Sam leapt in sweating and smoking. 
Right? Again, just another like gen- he was, genuine. Touch. He was sweating out all the pizza grease. Just <laughs> <laughs> he leaps. I love when he leaps in smoking because he always he's always like <laughs> <laughs> smoking is bad. Yeah. He really, so, yeah. he was mean to Cam. He, he's like, ew, covered in zits. I'm a grosso. <laughs> but he was smoking and he was driving. He was a little bit of a bad boy. Nerdy bad boy. Yeah, he was a bad boy. Bad boy and it was hot. And it was hot. He was, you know, he was lived in. He he, he leapt into if a very he le- If character. he leaped in and he was already sweaty, was it Cam's sweat that was on him? That's what I'm thinking. Gross. Right? <laughs> exactly. No wonder why it was so skeeved. Yeah. Anyway. Hey, didn't we promise everybody an interview with Holly Field? Hey! Hey, oh, all Speaking right. of not so, gross, cool lady, <laughs> Holly Fields. Yes. We are very lucky today to have on the Quantum Leap podcast. You may know her from many film roles and also television, and she does a lot of voiceover work. Jill from the episode of Quantum Leap, Kamikaze Kid, Holly Fields. Hi, how are you? Good. Great to have Great. you on here. <laughs> Great to have Thank you on here. You. Thank you. Oh, for it's be- fun to be on here. Quantum Leap is one of my favorite shows ever, so I'm very proud to represent it. <laughs> we have that in common. Oh, good. We reviewed the show you were in a couple episodes back, and uh, we yeah. really enjoyed it and thought you were really good in it. Oh, thank you so much. It was, it was so much fun. I almost ended up not doing it, actually. So that's, that's... How did that happen? Well, I had auditioned that day for another for a TV series. For um, it was Chris Carter's series called Brand New Life with Barbara Eden, and I went to network for the second time. And I was told I had it by Chris Carter, and I was his choice. But NBC had seen my episode of MacGyver where I played a hooker, and they're like, "Well, she can't play nice; she plays hookers." Meanwhile, I'm the opposite of the hooker. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the nice girl. But uh, so I was so devastated. So I had this audition for this new show called Quantum Leap. I had never heard of it. The sides didn't make sense to me because one minute he's called Sam and then Cam. I thought it was like a mistype. And uh, I almost didn't go on the callback. And I, I did, thankfully. And uh, no one had heard of it. You know, it was the third episode ever. So I went and I got it. And I am so thankful for going on that. What was it like, uh, your experience filming Quantum Leap? Oh, so much fun. I was just a kid. I was 13, and I, uh, I had the best time ever. I, Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell are two of the nicest guys I've ever worked with, and I've worked with a lot of great actors and nice people, but Scott, by far, is one of the kindest men ever. So it was pretty exciting, pretty fun, and the, the crew was incredible. Don Belisario is really well-known for picking out a fantastic crew that gets along and just a very happy set. Do you have any funny stories of things that happened during the filming? I do, actually. <laughs> yes, uh, it was my first kiss ever. So I, uh, yeah, ever. So I, I am getting to kiss Scott Bakula on screen. He's very, very tall. And so they had to put me on Apple boxes. So we're at the train station in Los, An- Los Angeles. And uh, I'm on this Apple box and dressed in 1950s clothing and doing the kiss. And, uh, it just it's my first kiss and my mom's there taking photos behind a tree and just very very you know the whole crew's watching you and it, I was so scared because I had never kissed anybody and I was the kid and he was so sweet about it and uh, more fatherly which was strange but just uh, it was very embarrassing and then and then they, they they knew how embarrassed I was about it so 
I thought they were joking when they said, we have to film the kiss again. I'm like, yeah, right. And they said, no, no, we have all this stuff behind it. And it was the first time they ever had him disappear during a kiss. So we actually really had to reshoot it. So we're reshooting it at Universal with the sky in the background so they could make him disappear easier. And uh, they were doing Dick Tracy next door. So Madonna was there, Warren Beatty, the whole crew and cast had just gotten up for lunch. So they're all... They're all there now watching the kiss. Wow. Because we're in the back lot between the sound stages filming this kiss up against the sky. And so embarrassing. And I just worked with Madonna on a Pepsi commercial. So she came over to say hi. And that was pretty cool. And um, so my first kiss was in front of like about 300 people. And I'm standing on Apple boxes. And it was with my mom taking photos. So... I'm sure that could be overwhelming for a 13-year-old girl, huh? Yeah, you know what? It was, but it wasn't. I, you know what? I, I, yeah, you know, thinking back, I, I was embarrassed about it more so than scared, but I look back now, and it's pretty cool to have your first kiss on camera and with Scott Bakula. So. Is he a good kisser? Oh, yeah, yeah, and he was, he was just so sweet because it was a sweet, innocent kiss. So. You were 13 and he was 35 at the time. Was there any like weirdness about that? No, because he's such a kind man. He was just one of the most upstanding men ever, like just so sweet and respectable. Uh, he even let me use his dressing room when he wasn't using it, this big trailer. I just started acting. And so he wanted to give me confidence. And he set all of the tapes to my scenes so I could watch them in his trailer and he just gave me a key, said, lock up when you're done. I mean, who does that? It's it's so rare to find an actor that is that kind. So he is just, I can't, I mean, I cannot say enough wonderful things about this man. He's wonderful. And so he's, and I've run into him since, and we still talk, and he's just a great guy. You hear that from a lot of people, so it must be true. Oh, he's incredible. I, I would actually go by after, anytime I was at Universal, and I'd hang out on the set and hang out with Don Belisario and, I got to do Jag again with them, and and I always got to hang out with Scott. And he's like, "Come, come here, come and watch, come and see this new set, and come to lunch." And just a great guy. It still is a great guy, even with all his fame now. I loved you on that episode of Jag. Your character was really good, and uh, oh, thank you. All the emotion you had to have in that episode it was it was pretty amazing. And uh, Dean Stockwell was also in that episode. Did, were you yes. able to reconnect with him in that episode? Or yes, yes, I look so different than I did on Quantum Leap because you know it's a kid on Quantum Leap and adult on. Jag and for a while he was like I can't remember because I was you know a little kid but I used to you know go by and talk with him you know, after I did the episode of Quantum Leap and he and I would sit and talk you know for like an hour during one of his breaks like after they filmed it even like two years after I filmed the episode I would still go by and we'd sit and hang out so yeah but it was it was so much fun reconnecting with him and and Don I love I love Don Belisario too. If he likes somebody, he seems to keep recasting him in all his projects, so that's a good thing. Yes, he does. He, he he tried to cast me again in Quantum Leap, actually, two episodes after I had just done, I think two I think two or three, I had just done the Kamikaze Kid, and they couldn't find a girl for this next episode they were casting, and they had me come to Universal to just wait and just, while they had their callbacks, and they said, if we can't find anybody, we're, you're going to go right to wardrobe, and then we're filming the next day, so I came and sat and waited, but they... They found uh, Amy Foster, who was fantastic. So I was bummed, but I was happy for her. So, <laughs> <laughs> What was it like to work with Jason Priestley? Oh, it's so much fun. He, had, he and I had just done MacGyver, not the same episode, but we both had just done MacGyver, and we had a lot in common for some reason. Uh, and we, just, we got along really, really well. We were both newcomers, and it was, I love him. He's a great guy. 
the whole cast, I mean, everyone they cast on that episode, I, I, I still see a lot of them and talk with them still. So it was a really positive experience for you? Extremely. Like, it's, it's funny because that's, I think, one of the first things, I think maybe the third show I had ever done, and they could, everyone kept saying, just so you know, it's not all this fun. Like, not all sets are this fun. I'm like, yeah, they are. And they actually, I haven't really had a bad experience ever on a set. And, uh, but they, they had the Quantum Leap crew and cast and the whole set. That that was a different experience than any other set I've been on. It, it definitely was starting off at the top. <laughs> and you'll never find a, a cast and crew that fantastic. Well, that's good. That's good to hear. Yeah. When you were filming the scene, when your character, Jill, was installing the nitrous oxide in the car, did yeah. did they give you a direction that they were going to uh, speed up your voices to make it sound like helium? No. Uh, they, they had explained to us that what was going to happen, but they didn't tell us how it was going to be done. I'm not sure if they knew at the time. Well, maybe they did, but they didn't tell us about it. They, I mean, they did say it, they didn't tell us exactly how it was going to happen. But they said, that, well, we're going to change it a bit. So just do it like a normal scene and we'll take care of it. Mm, cool. Uh, yeah. we, we have some questions for you from our listeners that they sent in. Cool. This question is from Peter. He asks, as someone who is playing off Scott Bakula, did you ever meet or interact with the real Cam? Oh, no. Uh, you want to do it? I? Gosh. The character playing Cam, the real Cam, I didn't. I, I didn't, actually. Everything was, for my, all my scenes are with, were with Scott. This question is from Andrew. You've had a lot of roles over the years with vocal work being more prevalent as of late. What type of work do you prefer and why? Well, I was on the OC, recurring on the OC, and I had a really bad car accident. So I actually kind of, kind of messed up my back. So I had to take a break for a while with on camera which is why I got more into, into voiceover. And it, thankfully, I got really lucky, and it took off. And voiceover, you actually you make more money than on camera. It's, it's crazy. You go in, you don't have to worry about what you look like or, or anything, and it, it's more based on your voice. So it's actually harder to get, but I, I got really lucky. And I started doing a lot of stuff for Cameron Diaz and, uh, and tons of other really great actors. So I, for some reason, I... I I had been acting since I was a kid, so I really loved the voiceover work because it was a change of pace and a challenge because for Cameron Diaz, like right now I'm working for her on a movie called The Other Woman with the director of The Notebook, Nick Casavetes, who is the most amazing director. So I'm very thankful for working with him, and I love Cameron Diaz. But uh, it's challenging because you have to you know, do well acting, of course, for them and sound like them and watch their lips and copy what they're saying at the, all at the same time. So it's, I'm liking the challenge. I love challenges. So I'm, I'm actually, you know, I'm, going, I'm doing a lot of films right now. I went back to acting last year for on camera, but I, I really love the voiceovers. I love working on Star Wars more than anything. And I loved working on Shrek too. That was so much fun. Yeah, you did a lot of work for Shrek. Tons of work. Yeah, a lot of it's on, on IMDb. I think I've done like 300 something i don't even know how many projects were struck for all over the world and it's so much i love the character princess fiona and i, I just adore cameron diaz so that's been such a fun job i guess when you can voice match someone that well uh pretty much the character you own it yeah it's it's scary I, well i'm voice matching her now i just started for the well i've been doing i got for two months now for the other woman and her voice has changed so it's it's been a major challenge because she's in this, she, she plays edgy, and I, they keep telling me, make your voice more 
you know, not so sweet. Because I'm used to Princess Fiona, and she's got the sweet voice, so I learned Cameron Diaz's voice for that. So now she's her voice has changed, so I'm having to adjust my voice to be edgier. So it, it's just such a fun job. It, it It's hard to explain how it works, but uh, you just go in, and it's it's very stressful, actually. Because it is only your voice. You're not getting to act with your your face or your you know your body. You just stand there and put an earphone against one ear and have to sound just like them. And there's so much more to it than on camera acting. And uh, you did voice matching for Drew Barrymore as well, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. I, that was fun for Beverly Hills Chihuahua. And uh, yeah, she's awesome. I I went to high school with her, so that was pretty cool getting to voice her. And Brittany Murphy, who was one of my best friends, and Leslie Mann, and Jennifer Love Hewitt, I've, I've Paula Abdul, I've, I've voice matched a lot of people. It's so much fun trying to, you know, get into sound like somebody else. It comes from singing. I've sung my whole life, so it's it's fun. I can I can match pretty easily. It's some people easier than others. Yeah, because those people don't really sound a lot alike. So to be no, able to do... they don't. No, Drew Barrymore and Cameron Diaz do, but yeah, it's their other ones have been pretty hard. But it's it's a fun challenge. So I love doing it. And you did many other roles. I was looking at your IMDb and going back and watching old episodes of things and uh, realizing I'd seen you and I'm like, Alf and Charmed. Yeah. What was it like working with Alf? Oh, Alf. Oh, that was actually an interesting experience because uh, there were a lot of people trying to direct. Like I had the director telling me to play it just the way I was playing it, but the guy playing Alf didn't want me to play it a certain way. And then the producers wanted it an opposite way. So I remember doing that show thinking, oh, my God, this is so stressful. Because, you, you know, everyone was telling me to play it opposite than the other person. So one person was telling me to play it kind of, uh, she was more like a dingbat kind of character. But then the guy playing Alf was like, don't play it like that. So I, I was having like five different people telling me how to play it. And they were all telling me how to play it differently. So that that was a very stressful situation. But, but fun. A lot of people remember you from uh, that episode of Charmed where the guy was trapped in the painting. Yeah, I was actually supposed to be the youngest sister on Charmed. Uh, that was a hard one. Uh, I had that part. The, the middle sister, actually, is what, who I was supposed to play. And then Holly Marie Combs decided she wanted to play it, and she was Shannon Doherty's best friend. So I was told all of a sudden I wasn't going to play it. So they tested me for the youngest, and I was told I had it. And then they hired a girl from that was under contract with Warner Brothers. And then she decided she did after the pilot she didn't want to do the show so they called me and said, "Can you start on Monday?" And this was a Friday. And they said we have one other person that we're interested in, in and she's a, a very you know big name actress. And I was like, okay, I understand. And they didn't tell me who. And it was Alyssa Milano. So she said yes to it. So I didn't get to do it. So I was really bummed because it would have been so much fun doing that show. I had I had a blast doing it. But I I do love Alyssa Milano. So I totally understand and I loved working with her. But uh, that was a hard thing, getting told you had the show and then not getting it three times, actually. So, Ouch. Ouch, yes. <laughs> but I've had that happen a lot. There's been so many shows. Like, I passed on Stargate. Oh, that's oh my goodness. Ever. Yeah, uh, yeah. What, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes. What character would, what did you go up for it, in Stargate? It was any role I wanted. I had done MacGyver for them. It was Michael Greenberg. And he and I were speaking one day, and he said, hey, do you want to be on Stargate? And I have this thing where I don't want anyone to ever think I'm their friend to get a part. Because there's so many people like that in L.A., and I'm not that way. So I was like, no, 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 it's okay. You don't have to give me a part. And he's like, yeah, I'd like to. And I was young and 
I get it now. Like you want to work with your friends because you know they're going to show up and know their lines and you, you know them. And it's better than hiring someone that you're not sure what's going to happen. So I I passed on it. And anyway, and I love Richard Dean Anderson. I, I would, I, he's such a great guy. I ended up going to the set and visiting when I was up there filming Sentinel. It filmed, filmed up in Canada. And I, I love sci-fi. So that would have been so much fun to do. That would have been awesome. Yeah. I've made a lot of mistakes. And, and managers I've had have, and agents have had me pass on stuff that ended up doing really well. And But, you know, you live and learn, mm-hmm. and it's okay. So you're working on a Star Wars project right now? Yes. Yeah, that that's really fun to do. And I get to do my own voice for a change, so that's pretty cool. I get to develop the character, and I got to speak at Comic-Con twice. And I, I, I'm the biggest fan of Star Wars. What's your character like in that game? Well, for anyone who's played it, I could say it now. For a year, for like two years when I was working on it, we weren't allowed to talk about it at all. But uh, now I can talk about her. Well, at first, I am uh, the nice, sweet girl. I'm the, I, gosh, I think I'm the empress in this one. It's been so long since I did the first one. And then I become a Jedi Knight, and then I become, I go to the dark side. So it's there's a whole arc, and I love that. And she's a kick-ass kind of character, which I love to play, so... She's a pretty cool girl. Like, I wish I were more like her in real life, but, but she's, it's a great character. Do you know what the name of the uh, game is and when it'll be out? I don't. It's actually, I, I don't know when it's going to be out, but it's still called Star Wars The Old Republic. Is that uh, harder doing for video games because you have to do so many different reactions, so many different takes, so many different things that might happen in the game? Uh, you know, yes and no. Like, I, when you're doing it on camera, it's really, it's a, I think it's a lot easier because you're acting with your body when you're having to just stand there in a room by yourself, because you're not interacting with any other actors, they add your voice in later with theirs. You're getting sometimes a cue line from the guy in the other room. So, like, I'm doing a love scene with my with a microphone, pretty much. Like, when you're doing a on-camera role, you're getting to actually act with somebody else in front of you. And when you're reacting, it's it's so much easier. But when you have nobody there to act with, it is actually pretty hard to, to do that. So... You have to really use your imagination. So, but but it's the love scenes. I had a I'm making out with my finger. And <laughs> 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 I have like all these guys from Star Wars, and there all the producers watching me. It's it's really embarrassing, but but it's really fun. I'm thankful for it. We had a, another question from one of our listeners, Andrew Garber. He yeah. asks, "Will you marry him?" Sure. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, that's so sweet. <laughs> I. I can't. I can't answer that yes or no. If if he uh, if he's a good guy, you know, I, I consider it. Well, hey, I'm that's single, something. So oh, yeah. there you go. Yeah. So maybe Andrew, you never know. Possibly, yes. Uh, I understand you're involved in some charity work. Big time, yes. I am a big, big, big animal lover. I've rescued dogs my whole life, and cats, and animals, and uh, I. It's so funny. I went to a party. And I'm talking to this guy in the room, and I hear the band Toto mentioned. I didn't really know the band that well. And I was like, yeah, I know. I, I thought I knew the lead singer. I thought it was my friend Nikki Fries, who's actually the lead singer of Shalimar. And uh, I'm telling this guy, oh, yeah, I know the lead singer. And he's like, what's his name? I'm like, well, Mickey Fries. He goes, no, I don't think that's the lead singer. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it is. I, I promise you. So I go out, and I'm talking to this other woman and, and sitting there. And this guy walks over, and she's like, this is my husband, Bobby Kimball. And he's in the band Toto, the guy I had been speaking to. 
uh, <laughs> is the lead singer. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. <laughs> he is the nicest guy you will ever meet besides Scott Bakula. Um, he was laughing. I'm like, why didn't you tell me you were the lead singer? I feel so stupid. And we've become the best of friends ever since. It's been, I think, five years now. And I've sung backup for Toto and backup, you know, for Bobby when he sings. And we do animal charity events for the vet and the veterans, and not veterinarians, the veterans. And uh, we've done a lot of great functions where they, you know, he sings and Bill Champlin from the band Chicago sings and a lot of like huge singers come. And we've raised a lot of money and we also do photos of animals that need homes with a celebrity. And we shoot the photo, we put it up on the internet, and we find homes for these these dogs. So it's been pretty awesome. Is there any way people can find out more information about that? Yeah, they can go to Saving Canine Lives on Facebook. And there's our photos up there and dogs that need homes. And it's a pretty it's a pretty cool foundation. And it's we make no money from it whatsoever. It's just doing it for the dogs. And we're going to expand it to everything else, like cats. And we want to do an elephant foundation as well so that's what we're working on that right now my daughter's favorite animal she's about 14 months old and she loves elephants oh, really oh it's so cute what's her name serenity oh i love that name is that from the tv show firefly yes i love firefly okay i knew that you know now i am definitely a sci-fi person <laughs> yeah most people say that's beautiful or is that from firefly i say yes. yeah it's from, yeah <laughs> Thank you so much, Holly. Thank you. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed your work on Quantum Leap. Thank you, and have a wonderful holiday and a great new year to everybody that's listening. Well, Allison, you were right. She is not gross. Wasn't she delightful? <laughs> yeah. She's lovely. Yeah. Such that was, uh, we said that's a 10-year-old interview. Yeah. And uh, yeah, thank you, Albie, for getting that. I think she was the second person we had ever spoken to as an interviewee on the show. I think he mentioned that. I think he said in, mentioned... he think he said in Facebook just now, my first yeah. interview was in the first edition of this episode. So it might have been his first interview. Yeah. I thought it was but Claudia that... Christian, but... So, yeah, so did I. Maybe he's forgetting. It was 10 years ago. Yeah. So maybe it blends, you know? I wouldn't have known unless I had looked it up. So, um, yeah, thank you, Holly, for um, being on the show way back when. I know that you're still active in the fan community, and uh, I think Albie, you know, still sometimes keeps in touch with her. Sometimes they'll comment back and forth on stuff. So, oh, that's nice. Yeah, just super cool lady. It's just, just funny the way that, you know, she describes the kiss, and it really was as innocent as they wanted to portray it on screen. Sure. By by all accounts, mm. by all accounts. So uh, I'm glad that we we were able to sort of tackle that that elephant in the room as well. <laughs> so, yeah. But uh, oh, surprise! Scott and Dean are the greatest people on earth. Who knew? Uh, <laughs> yeah. The first of many people to say that. Yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah, and good job, Albie. Um, didn't yeah. sound like your first interview at all. You sounded like a pro. Uh, he's so like good a- at coming up with great questions, talking to people. Yeah. I'm so jealous. Every time I hear Albie um, interview somebody, whenever I'm interviewing somebody, to me, it sounds like I am interviewing somebody. Albie just sounds like he's talking to him. Yeah. And he's just got he's this so wonderful. And, and you know what? I, it reminded me because the Holly Fields interview, Holly was talking about so much uh, voice work that she does and like how it's different than like camera work. And 
Albie's recent interview with Tiffany Smith, which I listened to this morning as well, she talks about the exact same thing because she does a ton of voiceover work. So uh, Albie is, you know, he, he's got it with the voice actors. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it struck me the similarity between the two interviews, um, that his first one and his most recent one, and um, you know, just killing it every time. Albie, good job. Thank you Great so job, much. Great job, Albie. To- Thank you so much again to Holly. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll get Jason Priestley the next time we do this. For oh, our third, heck yeah. Uh, It'd be amazing. <laughs> Talk to Jason Priestley. Be like, tell us about <laughs> pencil, my man. <laughs> we'll have to go around again and again. We'll yes. figure it out. So uh, eventually we'll we'll go around a third round on the on the original series. What do you think? Or, or is that when we just hang it up or we pass on the mantle to someone else? No, we still have to talk to Jason Priestley. So yeah. we at least have to take it back around to Kamikaze Kid. So you're <laughs> well, all stuck unless with unless Jason shows up in the new series as like an an older pencil. <laughs> <laughs> That would be perfect. Can you imagine I'm they never they right never now. do any other callbacks. They just have older pencil. The one yeah. character they decide they're yeah. gonna leap back to. Uh, right. <laughs> Some, why? Somehow he's a friend of magic. So I don't know. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I'm writing that script right now. Good, good, Matt. You're gonna get a story by credit on. That oh, script. thank you. <laughs> Well, speaking of that last episode, Paging Dr. Song, that featured Tiffany Smith, we have some feedback about it. Uh, We got an email from a listener named Kelly, and the title was Comment on Paging Dr. Song. I will begin. Hi, I've been listening to your podcast since the new Quantum Leap started, and I've really been enjoying it. You guys have some great theories and discussions, and I love all the interviews you do. I wanted to comment on a discussion you guys had about the opening scene of the last episode. You were saying that it seemed like Ben did an entire shift before Addison got there. I had a different interpretation of that scene. I thought that the leapy, Dr. Tomkinson, was leaving her shift at the hospital when Ben leaped in, which is why she was outside. Then she gets roped into delivering the baby when Ben leaps in and he goes back into the hospital. Addison comes in at this point, so it hadn't actually been that long. If this is true, it would make sense for Sandra to comment that Alex was supposed to have left already. I'm not sure if that's what the writers were going for, but that's the way I saw the scene. Anyway, I just wanted to share my thoughts on that. Love what you guys are doing, Kelly. Well, it makes well, as much you, sense Kelly. as anything, I suppose. Yeah, I, I reflected on, after our discussion, I reflected on it and came to the same conclusion. But then I started twisting my mind up thinking, it was pitch black outside. And, <laughs> and then it's like, it's bright. How it, it still doesn't listening. quite add up. They must have been near the hospital, I guess. I thought that they would have gone in, but I uh, I misremembered. There is a stretcher in that scene. Does, so yeah, it it's, seems it's like the they're near... the hospital car park. It, yeah. For sure. It's got to Yeah, be. that wasn't really clear to me. So I guess they're they're there. But yeah, the the fact it's like pitch black and then like the middle of the afternoon when we see him next, I don't know. Yeah, but... the, the lighting is an odd choice, but everything else, what Kelly says, makes absolute sense. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't see it in the middle. I saw it as early morning. But and and I feel like I put this in specifically because I was listening back after I edited that episode. Once you're in the edit, like you you you're in the weeds, you don't really get it. You're just getting the words right, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I was listening to it back and I'm like, wow, we really belabored that point for no reason. Yeah, <laughs> so that's true. I think we're Some things interest us. It a little bit. So thank you, Kelly, for you know, just saying, hey guys. This is but, probably uh, what happened. <laughs> 
<laughs> we are uh, very happy that you started listening with the new show. We hope that you're listening for uh, the classic episodes as well, like this one. And, or you won't uh, know what our not. response was. Exactly. <laughs> you <laughs> and have to if listen. you're not a fan of the original series, I mean, now is the perfect time to jump on board because it's on Peacock as well. And um, there's just a lot of terrific stuff to see. But thank you for jumping onto the podcast with the new show. Yeah, thanks. Plenty more on that to come. And uh, we hope you keep on enjoying it. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, I also want to include some good comments that we got on the YouTube channel uh, in response to our recent interview with Dean Gergeris. Uh, the user handle Marjoram wrote, you guys have done a great job in putting together great interviews this yeah. season. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, no. Um, Albie and Matt have done a great job. Oh, yeah. I've just it's been all them. For the ride. Yeah, it's all <laughs> them. Anyway, but you guys. Okay, I'll take it. I'm one of those guys. Um, I am loving the energy and excitement of the guests and hearing the behind the scenes of their particular jobs. I'm learning a lot and I'm very entertained, at least for Quantum Leap, but for other shows also likely, I won't be fast forwarding through the end credits anymore. Mm -hmm. I will be interested to see who is working on each episode. Great job. And I got to tell you, Aww. that's why I love the interviews where we talk with the crew. Um, I love talking to the cast. I love talking to the actors. But, man, that crew stuff, just that's where I get all geeky. And knowing, like, who does what and why and how it all fits together. Uh, as, you know, a former TV producer myself, I just find that stuff endlessly fascinating. I'm glad that others are finding the same thing. And uh, to the point where you're going to watch the credits. Who are you, Matt Dale? <laughs> <laughs> I need to write them down as well. I'm glad that it's a that not only are people interested in watching these interviews or listening to them, but it also is making them interested in how shows are made because there's yeah. just so much that goes into it, and uh, everyone has a story. So yeah, like that's that's why I am interested in the interviews, and uh, I'm glad that it's um it's appealing to so many more people. So thanks. Yeah, they're just they're a lot of fun to arrange and to do. So. Um... The, the fact that anyone else gets pleasure out of them is a is a wonderful added bonus. We love doing them. You always do yeah, a great yeah. job, Matt. Oh, thank you. You do, Matt. Thanks. Yeah, you went from Mr. I'm so nervous about this to like, no, I got it. No, I got it. You're a pro now. Oh, my God. The Leo Sart interview, I was so terrified. Oh, my goodness. Me. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's so much fun now. Yeah, well, listen, you know, you've you've grown into it admirably and uh I love the fact that That's a that's a glow up. Yeah, a glow up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But uh I you know, and I love the fact that you're available in the middle of the day when we're not, when we're all working to do this stuff. So, uh that I think that has a lot to do with it. Thank you for stepping up in that <laughs> regard handy. as well. Yes. Yeah, it's very handy. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, we have another comment on the uh, Georgeris interview. Allison, why don't you take this one? This is from Mansion Lover. <laughs> I love mansions. <laughs> Mansion Lover. And they say, loving the interviews you are getting, guys. I must admit that the only thing I really want from season two is the return of Ziggy. L-O-L. Oh, yeah. guess what, Mansion Lover? You're not alone. <laughs> it ain't ever going to happen. <laughs> but it'd be great. Uh, <laughs> well, it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to kind of happen. It's going to kind of happen for our podcast anyway, because we've been in sort of informal chats with a certain uh, Ziggy actress. Hey. Yes. Yeah. So Deborah has um, approached Albie and I think Matt as well about uh, coming back sometime in February, right? Yeah. 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 She's she's yeah. really keen to get back and talk about. Uh, she's got an episode coming up in a few weeks, so we'll be able to talk to her about that. She directed episode thirteen of mm -hmm. this uh, new season. This is the first time that she's directed an episode of Quantum Leap. 
it seems hard to believe she wrote a lot and obviously she was an executive producer but she uh yeah this is the first time directing one of them so i'm really excited to see what she does wow do we know the title of that episode or is it just untitled episode 13 yeah it's um and I, I just want to share this um, part of the story. Uh, when she she messaged me a few weeks back, um, <laughs> saying b- before anyone knew the title of the story, saying, "Oh yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to you seeing us. I directed uh, directed an episode. It's a it's a nice little episode, family style." And I was just like, "Oh, that that's a nice way to describe it." And I thought that's yeah. just what she was like. Oh, it's just a little family episode. And then yeah, a few days later. <laughs> Some of the um, some of the sources that we use started quoting "Family Style" as the name of the episode. Huh. Like, is that yeah, like we're... when you go to uh, go to In and Out and you get an animal style? <laughs> I don't know what I, I, I all I can think of is like a Butera's or a La Familia. It's an Italian restaurant where you get like giant portions. At oh the yeah, table. yeah. So is that the same thing? Family yeah. style. That's what the it's episode's going to be about, I'm sure. Yeah, is, is it all going to be them like <laughs> sitting around the table eating a meal? Yeah, that would be a departure. I feel like um, <laughs> I feel like that's also going to be a lead up to a very important episode, uh, as mm. Dean Georgera said. Uh, it was going to be um, yes. episode 14 was going to be very important. So I expect in the Deborah episode there for there to be a cliffhanger of sorts. Mm. Ooh. And here I thought it was just going to be a shot of Ben saying, yeah, I'll have the eggplant and then come <laughs> back to the project. I would gladly watch and, that too. And Janice, Janice <laughs> is escaping and, everyone's, and the elevator's in lockdown and the sirens are going off of the project and then come back to Ben saying, mm, this soup is pretty good. It's, and then come back to just, the project. It's like my dinner with Ben and the whole thing is just one dinner with him while everything else is going haywire at the project. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. Amazing. Oh, oh man, I can't wait like, to I can't, talk I can't to. Stay. I can't wait yeah. to talk to Deborah Pratt about this. I'm real excited to hear what what her experience was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's also going to be really great to talk to her because the last time we had her on, it was to promote the new show, and she couldn't say a goddamn thing about yes. the new show. Now she so, can give us all the deets. Yeah, some some of the deets. We're going to get half the deets, and then we'll have her on again after the uh, <laughs> season is over. Just like Dean said, he wanted to come back yeah. after the season was over. So we got plenty of stuff um, lined up for the hiatus. I think that we're going to get a lot of good interviews uh, in retrospect, mm. so that we can discuss season one as a whole finally. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's going to be great. So, Deborah, thank you so much for reaching out. We will for sure arrange to have you on. I'd like to maybe guys do that uh, as another special mm-hmm. so that uh, we can run it on one of the off weeks when they have uh, like a hiatus. Not a hiatus, but, uh, you know, they've been doing breaks lately, like hmm. two weeks on, one week off, one week on, two weeks off. So Yeah, there's we'll going to be some other breaks like coming up. I don't think they have yeah. another yeah. two week break, but. There are going to be so some make, yeah. yeah. Maybe we can tease it, tease it in the episode proper, and then make sort of an event and release it on its own. Because if it's one thing we know about talking to Deborah, we can always go for a couple hours with oh, her. She's so yes. great for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so got that to look forward to. So, yeah, that's great. So thank you to Marjoram and Mansion Lover and to Kelly. If you would like to be like them and tell us what you think about uh, Kamikaze Kid or the new Quantum Leap, there are many ways that you can do so. You can write us a letter at P.O. Box 542. Bayport, New York, 11705. You can get us by phone at 707-847-6682. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. You can hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at Quantum Leap Pod. You can also watch us on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash the Quantum Leap Podcast. And you can always go that extra mile and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash 
Quantum Leap Podcast. Just remember that we may be using your response on an upcoming episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. And speaking of uh, coming up next, Matt, tell us tell us what, what we're doing. Oh, this is this is a double whammy of awesomeness because the the next classic episode or the next classic discussion we're going to be having is going to be about uh, the novel Pulitzer, which uh, everyone uh, thinks is fantastic. It's uh, it's one of the highest regarded novels. Um, and the next new series episode is going to be the Groundhog Day esque uh, Robert Picardo guest starring Leap <laughs> Die Repeat. We are dealing. With a time loop. What kind of Groundhog Day is this? I could be stuck here forever. Quantum Leap, January 30th on NBC. I mean, it Heck doesn't yeah. get better than that. Yeah. Uh, so, so, yeah, we, we've got a, a fantastic novel and hopefully a fantastic episode uh, coming up to talk about in the next couple of weeks. Nothing but yeah, bangers. Yeah, I tell you. And uh, see, I said Kamikaze Kid was filthy. Allison, it's rubbed off on you, but... Uh, <laughs> Banger is that... a isn't a filthy thing. <laughs> You're making it filthy. <laughs> anyway, that's where lawyers come from. Um, <laughs> I'm just glad that we have some time to read Pulitzer because I think it's like 400 and some it pages. Is it's a, a long it's a book. Chunker. Yeah, it's it's a long book with teeny teeny print. So yeah. <laughs> we're gonna need some time to get through it. So we're giving all of you fair warning out there in the Quantum Leap Podcast Book Club. Uh, rev up those bookmarks because. Mm. Uh, for sure, uh, you're going to need it for Pulitzer. I don't think that's going to be a one-seating uh, read like uh, Search and Rescue or The Wall. Uh, I think that one's going to take a couple, for me anyway. So, But I'm looking forward to it. I'm so looking forward to Leap, Die, Repeat. Can't yes. wait to see that. So, so yeah, rubbing my hands together in glee and anticipation. And, um, and we'll be talking about that. But until that time, I have been Christopher D. Philippus. I've been Alison Pregler. And I've been Matt Dale. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris, with voice talent and contributions from Hayden McQueenie and Zoe Dean. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap podcast is Albert Burge. Christopher DeFilippis and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. Special thanks to our producers, Chris, a.k.a. Brackmang, Mike Covert, Joshua Burwald, Jeff Kiska, Craig Riedler, Cosplay Dad, Charles Allen Gossard, and Morgan Felden. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a Baron Space production. Bangers isn't isn't filthy. It's just, you got bangers and mash. That ain't filthy. <laughs> that sounds pretty filthy to me. I don't know. I tried to make Chunker sound filthy, but I don't know if I pulled it off. And I'm walking, and I'm walking, and I'm climbing. I'm walking here! Okay, I'm walking here. I was just thinking, glide and step, and glide and step, (laughs) glide and step. All right. Albie, good job. Thank you so much. Great job, Albie. Yay! Yay!
are you talking to? 